0: At The Signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome back to Weird Signal, the podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean and I am here remotely, digitally with Lucy. Hello. Uh, making our triumphant return back to the uh, mysterious haunted world of podcasting, uh, we are going to be talking about all sorts of uh, spooky things and all sorts of digital computery things as well, aren't we?
1: Yeah. Well, it's kind uh, of apt that it's this strange kind of interface that we've somehow got so used to, but always
0: feels so alien too yes yes well hopefully <laughs> yeah. next time we record it will be in person we're recording yeah. uh, we're recording just under one week into covid officially being over because they said yeah. it was so it's fine uh although we uh, like caution kind of like got the better caution got the better side of valor that's not saying is it i yeah we were, we're still be. It feels like it should be. Anyway, we're, not, we're recording this one remotely, just in case. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're also uh, currently basking in the cultural afterglow of it being a couple of days since Lil Nas X's video industry, i single rather, uh, industry baby, dropped, which has um, t- t- just transformed all of our lives, especially mine. Uh, which but you I know?
1: did not expect to be talking about, like until five minutes before we hit record.
0: Yes, I thought let's make it current. And yeah, uh but yeah, it's um it's just really nice that that's a thing that's going on. You know, right. you know, he's just he's just seems to be very likable. I, I mean I maintain he's he's this era's you know, present incarnation of the trickster deity, which is something that we need right now. Um mm-hmm. Yes. Uh it's no relevance to what it is we're gonna be talking about. Yeah. I just wanted to be it was just like I've got used to sort of like the the podcast that I hopefully our listeners will also be uh, aware of Buddies Without Organs. I do with Matt Cahoon and Corey uh, White. We always, we've ended up always beginning with a little bit of news at the beginning of it. Cause, yeah, cause you're n- just such, such relaxing
1: fun. voices to listen to. Oh, thank like, you. Just, like, you. It's like chill kind of Bretonian, you know, perfect diction kind of, <laughs> you know, updates from the coast. And you're all located in like the spookier parts of your respective countries of England and Australia. Yes. And Tori's also <laughs> very, very gentle on the earlobes So, you know um, If people are coming to this podcast From uh, Buddies Without Organs Get ready for some fucking Nasal shrill uh, Digressions If uh, Bodies, of me Yeah,
0: if Buddies Without Organs is the kind of like the, the smooth, like, evening jazz Playlist on Spotify This is the harsh noise Like, YouTube compilation Podcast mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> With yeah, oh, Lordy. And also like um, I don't know if you probably hear like the storm You're probably going to listen to some more of the storm Happening in the background but like I have Mondo Low air pressure brain today So I'm going to be trying to stay As coherent as possible uh, We have... it really does fuck with me
0: Yeah like maintaining tradition of like keeping not talking about the film until we've done our introductory essay. I'm not going to name the film. Even though the listener will know what the film is because they will see the ep- the name of the episode. Um, have- but um, we have the weather of the film we're going to be talking about at the moment. It's 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 mm. dense, humid, overcast, weird air pressure. Uh, yeah, it's it, yeah. It was it was really humid in church this morning. Actually, like I was I was I was literally sweating uh during uh during mass which hopefully isn't a sign of a fever i think
1: it's uh (laughs) cinematically it's this film and uh the kind of matthew broderick reboot of godzilla in the 90s that you know um meteorologically we are channeling for this episode that's right Um, yeah um i don't know like i feel like you know this is going to be okay so this is going to be like a weird like is this season four that's uh, because I'm going back to uni in October, and like the the set cert- future of this podcast is uncertain for that period. We have plans about like maybe reformatting a bit, and like maybe going with something a bit more regular, a bit more improvised, um, a bit you know. But like this is all this is all like this isn't housekeeping. This is like a warning. But, uh, <laughs> but we'll probably be keeping like updates on that as it emerges. But I just remember like last year we kicked off season three um, with like a kind of like a very florid recap of sort of the year's events and everything that's led us up to this point and like kind of the historic moment because we always like to locate ourselves in a historic moment. And I feel like um, this is a very difficult thing to do in the context of this, you know, return to podcasting ways because it feels like it's exactly the same historic moment that we were operating in a year ago and like seemingly nothing has changed. It's just like... Different levels of distrust, misinformation, and just the kind of the weird sort of mundanity of evil. <laughs> and, um, long
0: twenty twenty. That's that. That's yeah, that's the thing. 2020. It's, it's long twenty twenty. Uh, well, actually, no. It's it's long, 20, it's long 2008, Really, isn't it? You know, sort of like mm. you know, sort of like we we've we've never. You know, capitalism has never actually pulled itself out of the out of the death spiral that you know was was triggered in two thousand and eight with a financial crash. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's it has just been lurching from one moment uh, to the next, well, um, and, yeah. and 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 yeah, and and that has been you know everyone's experience of the he- of, of the last you know eighteen months that um it, it of this kind of very strange um, transformation of time where it is this kind of. Um, what am I trying to say here, actually? So we had this radical break from the normal in March, uh, with, with when with the pandemic, you know, kicking, you know, really kicking off. But that radical break ha- happened like recently enough that normal times are still like very, very like potent in memory and. Mm so it at the so although this like radical breakage happens i don't even know what i'm trying to say you know it feels like you yeah, know I, normal times I, are still very close but they also feel very very distant you know and we've kind yeah. of become used to this strange you know this strange world of the pandemic well also the strange world of the pandemic still being strange it's
1: yeah I think, I mean, I think, you know, if we want to locate this where, like, you know, the origins of this podcast emerged, we were talking about, like, you know, it was 2018, but still very much, like, in the throes of 2016. We were talking about, like, oh, yeah, this great kind of uncertainty, great sort of, like, great moments are happening because it's, like, sort of the the end of the, kind of, the 90s, uh, the bel- the much belated end of the 90s liberal consensus around progress. The The, la- the latest iteration of many kind of, like, rapid reminders that, like linear progression of time going back to the enlightenment is a is a concept to be challenged and challenged rigorously as a kind of moral imperative uh but i think it's just like yeah what we're seeing is just the fact that no it's able to it's so many different parts of our kind of like late late capitalist culture is very you know rapidly able to normalize basically anything you know when we were talking about this in 2016 when we were talking about the, the rupture of history it's like it was kind of like that was the latent effects of exactly what you say, like the the economic downturn um, finally manifesting and changing something. But by that point, uh, they'd already figured out their plans uh, and acted accordingly. So nothing really did change. And like and a lot of changes to kind of how the economy functions came off the back of the 2008 downturn and um, And the pandemic really kind of like revealed, you know, how how perfected the mechanisms that were set in place have become things like, you know, when all this talk about like Tesla in the news recently and the fact that like that's a company that almost exclusively exists um, because um, because, you know, it was by traditional economic metrics, it would have been an abject failure. But it was able to capitalize on um, sort of economic stimuluses to um, and sort of and carbon offsetting, uh, especially yeah. yeah, carbon offsetting, and you know, and bailout packages and stuff, and you know, sort of very, very loose, you know, things that sound like you know almost bordering on a planned economy, but were in fact like the maximum they needed to do to remain as hands off uh, in economic terms as possible. And um, and yeah, there was a very good uh, article recently uh, released by Jody Dean, who um, recently has published a uh you know recently a couple of months ago but who who's counting um an article about like the rise of like neo-feudalism and that being almost like um the you know the 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 growing norm and it's like and it has all these kind of classic connotations of being the thing the way things have almost always worked in the third world but becoming a kind of more visible reality in in the current you know in the current kind of west and and through art you know now becoming visible to our kind of cultural filters and stuff but um yeah like massive companies basically um enacting wide-scale primitive accumulation the fact that you know amazon owns so much of like just internet infrastructure from the ground up so that there's you know no way of escaping monopolies however much um that's where most of, of their money comes from exactly yeah, yeah. like, so, like that so yeah
0: like if you're not not saying that you um it's bad to not buy things off of Amazon though I think we all do you know not saying that you shouldn't resist that but that's not like if you want to try and have no interaction with like with, with Jeff Bezos's money making machine then you have to uh, burn your phone and your laptop yeah. like because you you can't it, that yeah. is how 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 many levels down it goes, and this is the Pretty other much. the other thing as well. And I think I think why, and I have I haven't read that article, but I wonder if she talks about personal attachments being formed with these people, uh, or parasocial relationships. You know, to mm-hmm. use to use the the term every podcaster is familiar with yeah. um, the uh, the extent to which people on the internet develop these this this kind of. Um, fandom around people like especially elon musk um i mean he's I, 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 you know he is more charismatic than jeff Be- well, not that i want to call elon musk charismatic as he isn't but comparatively he's more charismatic than um than, than, uh, than uh, jeff bezos certainly and i suppose in many ways that's not so much uh that isn't a recent novelty i think maybe like the The scale of it is quite recent but that was Mm. what richard branson was doing you know like he was like the celebrity rich guy back in the 80s and the 90s right uh and it's
1: kind of there's there's a historic pattern of like this always happened kind of in the uk first but was too boring to recognize at the time (laughs) and now it's like branson and bezos in a race together it's like oh Branson's still about he's not just like comically evil he's like you know he's 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 been keeping up to date with his particular brand of evil bullshit.
0: Yes, exactly. Uh, ter- oh, terrible, terrible, evil bastard man. Yeah, and yeah, and also just like the, um, and I think this is something that we said in our Donnie Darker episode because I remember like making some kind of quip that sort of like oh cyberpunk's real because we've got sort of like this impending global plague and all of that and. Um, and yeah, cyberpunk continues to be real and it continues to be deeply boring because we had literally like, you know, two billionaires raising one another into space and it was fucking dull as shit and no one cared of except died. for we. Not, no one died um, and it was just really deeply kind of like boring. I, the only people who cared about
1: it were weirdos. A lot weirdos. of Amazon, lab- uh, Amazon warehouse workers died. That they're the ones who died to get him into Jesus space. Jesus Christ, yeah. yeah. And, like, they were the uh, fucking liker of that particular space
0: race. And just you know, the absolute, and obviously there was just the absolute, like, stupid... Oh, God, you know, sort of like one of those moments with, where, you know, reality has bad writing, where sort of like Jeff Bezos' rocket literally looks like a phallus. Mm. Um, and as well as that, you know, like, not the time... <laughs> Ah, uh, not that I'm going to say anything nice about Elon Musk, but I will say that you know the rockets that his company makes—not the rockets he makes—he doesn't make rockets. We should stop using, think of it like that. You know, the rockets the company he owns make does actually do things, like they they take satellites and and bits of space station and people up into. Real, real space, not fake space. That's because
1: space. he took the the tech and the specialists from the former Soviet Union.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> continuing, continuing that final tradition begun with Operation Paperclip. I am not comparing the Soviet Union to Nazi Germany. Don't at me. Um, but the, but yeah, the, yeah, I will say that at least you know sort of like a modicum of not even praise, but sort of like at least those rockets accomplish things that are like real. They have functions, mm. <laughs> but yeah, he didn't but design them in himself, Paris or any kind of like, any nonsense like that. Also, the fucking Soyuz still works fine, unlike the space shuttle. There was a great episode of um, Well, There's Your Problem recently talking about the space shuttle and observing that arg- it, it arguably should not. Ever have been considered a reusable spacecraft Because it's The amount of like work that needed Like so much of it needs to be sort of like Replaced whenever it flew Because it's, mm-hmm. yeah Anyway yeah. Um, Follow the podcast, go listen uh- Anyway, we've talked uh, a lot of... And actually, just other other podcasts, Rec Trash Future, have done some really good stuff about Tesla mm -hmm. in particular. Uh, I can't remember the name of the episode. We may or may not link to it if we remember to, but yeah.
1: Um, I feel it's uh, highly apt that we're talking about economic downturns and their effects being both extremely complex, uh, intangible, and having uh, tendrils into um, all aspects of modern life in a way that I... I'm going to talk more about later. Um, You look like um, you've got something to say, do you? Yeah, no. Yeah, I'm going to say uh, my kind of like the subject, my loose kind of like thesis for this episode is uh, Japan at the end of history. Um, And at that point, I'm really tempted to say, and that's why we're going to be talking about Pulse, but I've got so much more to say, but I felt (laughs) this warm up was necessary, at least for me, because it's a long time since I've, uh, I've cracked the boards of, podcasting. We haven't even um, but, started yet. Yeah, yeah. This is great. And yeah, 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 But like, yeah, basically um, I so callback um, a while back in like kind of like early phases with Signal. I can't remember if it was like technically season one or season two but we covered House or House um, the 1977 Japanese kind of like folkloric uh, psychedelic comedy horror survival film farce um and the glorious kind of insane melting pot that that was and i think like at the time like listening back to it um i found like my efforts to kind of like pin down kind of what was uniquely japanese about it were fumbling and prone to um prone to assumptions and stuff and mostly because like I was so kind of reluctant to make assumptions or to kind of like make sweeping generalizations. Um, And so this time I was like, right, I'm going to actually like, you know, fucking hit the books harder than I did previously. And um, the setup I'm working well, the the, the point I'm getting to here is the fact that like uh, this time around with like much more ample time to do the research, I still found a lot of problems in pinning that thing down. Um, And the, 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 the quote, you know, the, the, the thing I said in that in that episode way back um, about House was uh, the fact that we weren't going to be talking about J-horror because J-horror was a uh, particular thing with specific connections to the economic situation of Japan in the 1990s. Um, and a lot of the sources I... Well, one, I don't think I actually managed to find a, um, a source in my... In my investigations on this on the themes I was looking at um that were by Japanese authors so a lot of this is going to be me saying uh well this scholar has made this statement um but yeah basically um I think it was like so yeah so the, the general point was that you know Japan had gone through a um a, ma- a massive period of economic growth a very rapid and unstable one and then the kind of economic bubble uh, had a massive effect on society and broke, and like, it was the kind of rapid um, absorption of of capitalism, like late capitalism into culture, uh, and then kind of the removal of whatever certainties it was presenting up until that point that um, informs the general kind of malaise or strangeness that uh, Japanese horror of the, or, you know, tension and anguish and, and um and fear that Japanese horror of the 90s and early 2000s was tapping into but um pinning this pinning down like the specifics of how this functioned was still difficult uh, and um so what i've what i've uh, instead tried to do is um bring it into the wider weird signal project of you're know, looking at culture and the world after the end of history Uh, And so, you know, we're going to be looking at Japan at the end of history and what that meant. And um, so, yeah, so like the key points. So I spoke about like the economic downturn. I think this was like the second of two kind of, I I believe there was one kind of like from like 1960s to 1970s, which um, probably, um, you know, the downturn there was in line with the global downturn that affected the United States. That's an important point I'll return to later. But this one specifically was the bubble economy of the... um, It's first kind of like stirrings were in 1990, but it's properly thought to be kind of like, uh, properly thought to have occurred between 1991 and 1992. And this resulted in what's been described as a lost decade. So um, this idea that uh, there was massive job loss, there was massive kind of unemployment uncertainty and, um, and, and like, well, you know, the, the usual upheavals that come with that. And I guess... In the same way we were talking about, you know, how the present is still feeling the effects of the kind of the, you know, 2008, 2011 economic downturn, like, the effects, they were no, they were like, they were visible, but not really understood. And now when people, you know, people talk about it as a lost decade, um, but it's hard to tell what that even means. And also whether, you know, like, if it was a lost decade, what changed in 2000 to bring it back? And really, it was nothing. It's, people say it's like still happening. And it's that it's that same logic of like the world was never supposed to be like it was um, in the nineties because it was based on us particular quirks of history that um, can't be repeated unless, you know, we're prepared for um, eventually, you know, either the same thing happening 20 years down the line or a massive uh, ecological collapse, uh, which whichever of the two seems more likely, probably both, but uh, kind of, thinking about like what that actually means for japan um and the culture i i think like the key things that we need to understand there is first like this process of modernization it wasn't just pure and when i say that i'm not speaking purely in terms of like economic modernizations and they had a modern western economy because that doesn't just happen um through access to the global economy um there are very specific power relations that um that bring about the kind of winners and losers of, um, the last, you know, of like the, um, modern global development. And Japan is very much, you know, despite, um, this kind of downtown we talk of on the winning side, but, um, this modernization in a kind of cultural sense, one of the key things that we have to think about to understand it is the fact that it is, it is like, well, essentially it is a post-colonial nation, um, who, um, in a very rapid time through um through basically kind of like a series of kind of like um industrial miracles basically um turned itself into a um a kind of modern industrial nation of like the 1920s 1930s and then set about pretty much turning itself into an imperial power um modeled on the european thing and i think even sean you took talk, you talked about this in uh uh the Remember if it was the Nosferatu episode or the Hauser episode, but like, um, the aesthetics of like uh, Prussian uh yes. hi- a Prussian uh, aristocratic society were widely imported into Japan, and that's why, like, that's why school children still wear sailor suits. Yeah, if I um, can,
0: yeah, I will say just a, a quick corrective I'm not sure how accurate it would be. To, it wouldn't, I don't think it would be accurate to call Japan uh, a post industrial, post colonial society in that sense because the whole like the 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 ethos behind the Meiji Restoration, like the Westernization project, was to avoid that kind of thing happening. Mm. Um, where where you know the situation that uh, that existed in in the Far East mm. was one where they were looking at what was happening to China in particular with the unequal treaties that were being enforced on them, and there was this realization that something had to be done in order to preserve Japan's sovereignty mm. and the decision that was made was uh one of um western modernization along western ter- along western terms
1: yeah. uh, I mean yeah I mean like the, the yeah like, just to clarify they weren't colonized in the way you know china and many other na- uh, these you know like um they had been to forced to
0: open up by the americans but but at, literally yeah. at, at gunpoint and like um white savior film warning the last samurai does a good job of like dramatizing it like with all like the obvious sort of like caveats of so, so like it's a 90s movie with tom cruise in it about how this white guy goes to japan and learns that they're actually great but that does kind of like do a fairly good job of dramatizing like the situation in japan where you do have this tension between traditional japanese culture and the new westernized capitalist one i can hear yeah. a lot of rain coming from your Yeah,
1: i'm gonna just close my window okay <laughs> great yeah thank you. i was uh standing up to i was re- retaining eye contact but trying to stand up so yeah like again i've already made my first like major kind of like um category you know like thematic historical error in that one. But (laughs) but basically, it's like the fact that they were an Asian nation witnessing things happening to other nations um, in Asia um, by European powers and this kind of, this knowledge that they were sort of precariously poised in a similar position, that there was this kind of racial othering that made, the kind of racial othering that, you know, became the kind of governing ideology of colonial um, exploitation was applied to them and i think there was kind of there's a sense that that was kind of um you know present culturally and you know strategically in the kind of modernization process that happened in the early 20th century and it's important it's also significant that you um cite the american influence there because um america was i think uh already even by that point we think about like neo-colonialism as something you know um post Bretton woods post war uh where um you know the old the old systems of military takeover and debt bondage and forcible treaty signing and stuff were um were kind of like america taking things up but you know take taking over from the uh, waning european powers but they'd already been doing this to south american nations for um for the better part of 100 years like they um you know, there was the monroe doctrine the idea that like this is our back garden, South America is not for colonizing, because we have our own idea, you know, we have our own yes. agenda to it. And and I think that's like, that follows very importantly into the post-war period in Japan, because um, the kind of, the the economic rebuilding and the global integration of Japan following that point was very much a, it was very much a U.S.-sponsored um, and U.S.-backed process. Um, they were almost like a kind of early nation-building project for them to make sure that they they were the ones responsible for making another great nation rise out of the, the ashes of war. And this had obvious, you know, obvious implications because it was, like, to offset the Soviet Union, to offset the rise of communism in, in Eastern, uh, you know, in, in uh, Southeast Asia, the idea that... Um, that it's good to have this strong regional power base not just as an ally but you know as a friendly place to put their troops uh, who are all still there today in mm. increasing numbers so uh, uh it...
0: south korea as well yeah, uh, west germany and uh mm. And, you know, a situation you end up with is, uh, I assume this supplies to Japan as well, but I know it was true of, Ge- of West Germany, was the constitution that, uh, that the you know, the, the Americans sort of, like, force on them ends up having, like, more, like, guarantees of um, racial justice and equality than they had in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because, th- and you're yeah. right, this was, this was a... Um, I mean, you know, you know. There's the saying, you know, sort of like a war is politics conducted by other means. But sort of like uh, the inverse is true: politics is war conducted by other means. And that mm. is what part. That's what this was. This was because um, there was a there was an awareness during the Second World War as well that sort of like the next confrontation will be between the United States of America and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So there was this, and there was even like um, there was like. Some discussion among the Allies about sort of like when the war was coming to its close, it was sort of like, do we just like keep going east? You know, do we? <laughs> yeah. And they decided, no, we'd lose that, wouldn't we? Especially mm. because World War Two was won by Russia. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but
1: just like to, to keep on the American point, actually, and also, um, I'm going to take your your point about like yeah, like politics. War is politics by other means. Politics is war by other means. Uh, this, the project, you know, the way the kind of, like, American foothold in Japan was actually kind of mostly realized and what really cemented its presence in, um, in Japanese uh, political life to this day is the fact that, um, yeah, like, it was politics conducted politics and war conducted um clandestinely at the same time because it's you know one can be analogous with the other but um they can happen happen simultaneously uh and in this kind of rather strained analogy that i'm trying to string together it's basically um one of the key things one of the key events establishing japanese post-war political life was the fact that um the the CIA were extremely involved in suppressing the uh, nascent um, Japanese Communist Party, or even like not even Communists, just like kind of any kind of like broadly socialist groups in America that um, that I think um, you know gathered around the kind of I don't know if it was like a left coalition or an explicitly communist one, but um, yeah, basically they sponsored a um, a, a political coalition between. The uh, Liberal Democratic Party, who were kind of, well, um, who were kind of like globally kind of like liberal conservative in that they were all about kind of uh, globalization and stuff. Uh, they sponsored a merger between them and the Japan Democratic Party, confusingly named, um, who were um, of a much more kind of nationalist bent. Um, and this was, you know, pretty much, you know, aligning themselves with figures on the far right um, and you know well, no, no, i'll phrase that better you know more pertinently it's um kind of uh liberalism aligning itself with the extreme right uh for the towards the suppression of communism because that is something ultimately more frightening to them than fascism um and you know to to, to pretty much you know, reinforce that old adage i believe is uh is uh, ascribed to gramsci but i might be wrong that like liberalism is capitalism when it's not afraid fascism is capitalism when it's afraid. <laughs> and, um, and what does, you know, and what did this mean for Japan? Well, it means that um, it never had a strong kind of leftist culture or labor movement in the way that, you know, even kind of moderate uh, European states, you know, like, like Britain or, you know, it- Italy had like a long sort of like vaguely contiguous, but never really that, well, no, like, long-standing long, long standing Communist Party who were eventually just sort of, like, shoved out of the way by uh, neoliberalism in the 90s, but what we see now is um, the impact of this is clear when you look at the fact that currently, as it stands, uh, per 16.7% of Japanese workers are unionised, um, which is why they all work completely insane long hours, and why corporate culture has just become such a you know, intense part of everyday life, and and this, you know, I think sets us up for talking about like what is specifically end of history about um, about the situation when we get to the '90s. Um, and yeah, it's this—it's the this sense that kind of—and um, here I'm going to be drawing on like uh, the first of one of the kind of various scholars I've um, I've come across who tried to bring this into a kind of uh, wider cultural vein. Then uh, vein. this is from a uh, well, this is from a book called, I believe. Oh, if I can just find it, it is um, National Cultural Phantasms and Modernity's Losses. Um, That's the chapter in a book called Discourses of Vanishing uh, where she talks about hybrid realities and what she means by this, she's drawing on a kind of um, heavily Lacanian-oriented definition, but, um, and and, you know, this is going way back to what I was talking about with uh, how the Japanese kind of like, how they dealt with the kind of like Othering that entails um, full and equal participation in an overwhelmingly uh, white European global uh, dominated global system. Um, they sort of overcame any kind of possible insecurity by basically doubling down on um, their involvement in the global system um, from Bretton Woods to neoliberalism uh, onwards. Um, and what this means is that, um, they, there was a co- sort of borderline conscious attempt to, or, you know, widespread attempt to identify japanese with modernity itself, so to be Japanese was to be transnational, to exist on the cusp of, uh, global capital, and, um, and essentially, like um, she, I think she uses like uh, the Zizek phrase, the nation thing. Um, their nation thing was to basically make the othering part of their kind of, you know, make this kind of like, um, yeah, this this kind of like racial or cultural othering, um, and treat it as something that um, made them kind of naturally able to participate well in this situation. And um, and this is basically done by kind of having a very neat tied up, uh, uh, you know, set in the past um, image of pre-modern Japan. And um, and then identify, you know, this kind of um, the kind of hyper-industrialized, hyper-industrialization, uh, f- kind of hyper kind of being work, you know, extremely work oriented. Um, And just generally being able to deal with hyper realities like second nature that that was kind of self like that was characterized as a kind of Japanese-ness. And so so what she's describing is um, by doing well out of this system, um, there was this sense that these stereotypes surrounded them of like, you know, the. The, the the oriental who is uh work obsessed and 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 flexible and fluid in their engagements with capitalism and doubled down on it so, and owned it uh in a in a sense that um sounds positive but often isn't um and then that's kind of that's kind of yeah become um let Jap- you know that is the character the nation thing of japan um I, I'm just going to read out a quote from the thing, which uh, I think just sums this up very nicely when she's uh, coining, the, well, using the term hybrid realities. Uh, so uh, the hybrid realities of Japan today, of multiple border crossings and transnational interchanges in the worlds of trade, aesthetics and sciences, are contained within dominant discourses on the cultural purity and non On cultural purity and non-difference, and in nostalgic appeals to pre-modernity. What makes the Japanese so different from everybody else makes them identical to each other. What threatens the self-sameness is often marked temporally as the intrusively modern, spatially as foreign. Although these discourses are being altered by the effects of advanced capitalism, they have proved remarkably resilient as they haunt the the possibilities of a post-nationalist consciousness in contemporary Japan. Um... And to, to follow through with the you know what does this mean for Japan at the end of history? It's basically, if um, if that is the level of engagement you know, um, in this Jamesonian intense you know every part of living life is is uh is tied in with capital. Um, what happens when the bubble bursts? What happens when that system that you've done so well out of as to make your own screws you? Um, and and you know, and that's ex- and exactly what that's describing is um is what we're seeing in this supposed lost decade of Japan, where we've got like an epidemic of loneliness and isolation, uh, strange work cultures that kind of that never leave um that never kind of like leave you in leisure time, a kind of often sometimes very transactional leisure culture, and a disconnection. And there's also kind of like. Um, a breakup of kind of like old certainties surrounding family and gender roles, which were never really reconciled, uh, even in the heyday of capitalism, and now are kind of now create you know have their own strangeness there, which we're probably going to go into more. And high levels of mental illness, burnout, self-destruction, and crucially, suicide. I guess that is why we're going to be talking about pulse.
0: Released under the Japanese title Cairo, translating literally as Circuits, this film follows two converging narratives, which only come together really in the last third of the film, actually. One follows a group of colleagues at a, we think, a flower delivery business, which I suppose is a florist, um, (laughs) Michi, uh, Junko and Yabe. Uh, the other, a college student, uh, Kabashima, uh, and a friend he makes in the comp side department called Havaray. Uh, together, these two groups bear witness to a series of strange, interconnected phenomena. People are seeing ghosts on the internet, and entering strange states where they become emotionally detached, begin sealing off spaces with red tape, and then appear to their friends as alive when already dead, before these ghost selves dissolve into ashes. The different parties attempt to investigate this but even as they expose the working of the phenomenon it is already well on the way to consuming all mankind. Yeah. 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 Um, Straight off the bat, Sean, did
1: you... I think just, like, yeah, straight off the bat, Sean, did you expect this to end in an apocalypse scenario?
0: No, I didn't. Um, it's mm. very, uh, yeah... Oh, just, I'm just licking a bit of marshmallow filling off of my thumb. I'm eating a candy. Um, the, yeah, it's... Um... I know that like our general rule before has been, but we don't tend to editorialise too much about the film in terms of its like in terms of its quality, especially because we tend to pick films we like. Um, but I will say that the first half of this film is a lot stronger than the second half. I didn't love the apocalyptic turn um, mm. that it goes for. Uh, I think that um, I think it runs into budget problems. To be honest with you, so like you get some quite like you know sort of like chonky like early 2000s video game looking cgi yeah. um the, broken uh, the
1: cgi surprised me because like the the aesthetics the visuals of it up until that point had been so strong and yeah. also they made very strong use of like practical effects or just like visibly old school uh filmmaking techniques that or um, leaning been, in
0: yeah. or leaning into the inherently like jerky blurry character of year 2000, 2001 internet. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the, uh, yeah, I I didn't love the turn uh, that it makes in that regard. I still think it's a pretty good ending. I like the film. Um, it should have been shorter is my kind of, like, main takeaway. like uh, I think you can still do like the big apocalypse thing, but I think it's it could have been done in the way that stuck with the character that the film had established through itself a little bit more and mm-hmm. i think it is half an hour too long i think i think it could be condensed down from two hours which, um, it, which is too yeah. long for this film um, i think
1: like, my own critical uh sort of caveats that i'm going to put up at this point which seems to be all caveats so far um <laughs> is that it is a very difficult film it is a film at once very difficult to follow kind of the, the yeah. events seem sort of strange and disconnected, which I'm, you know, well, which is, I think <laughs> deliberate in a, in a way that is thematically appropriate that I want to talk about in a minute. But at the same time, it's like, there's a kind of tense kind of vagueness that gives way to, um, overt, um exposition about exactly what is happening um, and you know i i think it's also pertinent to point out that we both tried to watch this together got halfway through got sleepy had to watch it separately and both had to start again because we'd forgotten what happens in the first half of the film um <laughs> and uh, but yeah my my main takeaway is the fact that i think this is the film doing its job um and yeah like i don't know you know I've got just, like, kind of first point I want to talk about, I guess, is dramaturgy. Uh, what I and what I mean by that is, like, the, the fact that it's so hard to follow because it's dreamlike uh, in the way that it's, like, you know, you remember a dream um, and then you try and relate the dream. And the details are so kind of, like, disconnected and so weird that you have the absence of, like, a coherent or deliberate uh, dramatic framing of this makes it impossible to kind of start even listing the things that happen in a chronological order and this is something that they play up to especially well i think because um the it's not just you know um well no it's in it's in everything in the film the fact that like we have lapses between um quite you know naturalistic dialogue and then as i was saying earlier extremely unnatural extremely like exposition oriented um Dialogue where it's like someone will be kind of like um, taking the part of the audience and asking questions to have someone um, relate these in explicit detail and you know and pretty much like spell out the mythos Um, and uh, the and the mythos itself is something you know very very weird but I think um, I hit upon the term dramaturgy specifically because in so many aspects of this it is like a play it's in in not just in terms of like the scripting but just the the stage setup the mise en scene like very i think especially kind of in the earlier scenes in the flower shop you have people coming in to the scene um standing like at equal distances around the stage pointing in different directions saying things that will then get picked up by think by another person and they'll go back and forth and then another person will wander onto set and or onto the stage and add something to it. And it will kind of spell it out like this, very, very kind of deliberatively. And, um, and then like, I don't know, like they'll, yeah, I think, um, but in terms of like the, you know, where where this actually um, meshes with the plot, this, the thing we mentioned earlier about people, um, people turning into ghosts, this is weird because it's not like someone gets, um, you know, encounters a ghost and then dies of fright, like in the ring. Um, it's they encounter a ghost and then they're just kind of weird for a while and people can't figure out what they're doing. Yeah. And it's troubling. And um, and then they'll, you know, and they'll be, you know, and ad- they'll try to, like, directly speak to these people and... Um, and not be able to get a straight answer out of them, and then they just slowly watch them die or slowly watch them disappear um, and yeah it's just it's I think one of the reasons why that is something I associate with dream is because it taps into that primordial helplessness, the idea that like you're you're watching these things happen and you're sort of you know having an emotional reaction to them, but it 's just not being registered, and you have no no grounds to, like, identify what's going on. <laughs> and,
0: yeah. on, on terms of dramaturgy, there was one quite good filmic bit, so to speak, something that couldn't really be achieved, or could be achieved, but differently um, in, in, in the theatre, is there's a wonderful bit of just really good framing where... Um, uh, and I can't remember the name. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the guy who owns the florist. But there's a bit where they're having, where they're having a conversation. Yabe is the
1: manager, but well, it's like actually no, Yabe is like a colleague on them. I didn't put the name of them I didn't look up the name of the manager. I forgot. I thought I I'd written it down, but
0: mentioned. I haven't. I was just go oh, for yeah. my notebook. But yeah, there's, but there's a bit where he's talking about kind of the impossibility of friendship. Uh, and it's one of those kind of, like, more, like, knowing bits of exposition that you were talking about. And they're having this conversation on, like, top of the roof of, of, of this office, but, but basically. And the camera kind of, it, it, it follows him as he kind of, like, wanders and he's going, having this monologue about you know isolation and loneliness and you have this moment where you realize he's the only person in frame and because something that has been established in the film by this point is people disappearing you do have this sense that you aren't sure he's talking to anybody anymore even though you could see he just was it's a really <laughs> just lovely good bit of filmmaking that mm. I, I really I really loved it when I I really liked it when I saw they were doing it, but I felt like a clever boy for spotting it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that,
1: that dislocation comes up in other places, but I think it's kind of generalized throughout the cast at different places, but that is kind of that is it at its most notable.
0: Yeah, the cinema like again, like the first two thirds of this of 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 this film is, is the film at its strongest. But it, the cinematography does a really good job of conveying that sense of loneliness and and isolation and helplessness. And there Mm. is some, there's a really good bit towards the end as well, where, um, uh, um, uh, where uh, Ryusoki, uh Kawashima, the, the, stu- the economic student, is in this arcade where he keeps on going, and then he just realises he's, he's completely on his own uh, because everybody's been eaten by ghosts. Uh, it, it's very, <laughs> it's very good at, at, at moments like that. It generally tends to, it, it's, it doesn't, go, it do, it's not going for. There's some good like jump scares that are very well handled, which aren't cheap Um, because there isn't anything inherently cheap about jump scare, I know people people Mm. who sort of like use words like post-horror like talk about them sort of like derisively, but like, but no, like that's part of it, making people jump is part of horror Uh, Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of whether it's earned or not, and there are some very simple and very effective moments like that, and there is just like some of that kind of really kind of like archetypal um, bits of sort of like horror filmmaking of just like someone suddenly appears where there was no one before or they disappear Mm -hmm. where they were there before. Very, very simple things like that just handled extremely well. Um, And, as well, and just, just to kind of, like, wax lyrical a bit on that theme, again, sort of, like, where the film does too... I, I, I don't want to talk, like... I don't want to feel like I'm being too down on the end of the film because it is a film that's worth watching to the end. It is a good film. Um, but, like, precisely, like, when the film gets weaker, it is when it shows more of its hand, which is, like, the most, like, classic problem a horror movie can have, right? So sort of mm. like, it reveals a little bit too much. And that's why I said I think it should have been a shorter film. I almost kind of, like, want to see, like, a 20-minute version of this. Where it's just, yeah. you know, it's just that, like, those, like, initial <sighs> moments of, like, what the fuckness. Um, like, this would re- make
1: a cracking short film, but I don't know if we'd been a I don't know, like... We could ring, we could could ring an episode film, out of that. Yeah, yeah, Tate. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I mean, um, there was... I don't know, like... I feel like there's a... Just looking at my notes, I feel like there is a... Um, plot point or a thematic point i want to make which could very conveniently um well th- that i want to bring up because it can very very conveniently excuses us from uh talking you know mesh thrashing out this film in the rigorous clearly demarcated um concept-oriented way that our listeners are so used to. <laughs> um, and it's not just because it's difficult to follow, but um, the fact that it's multiple different narratives, um, like, it's well, it's two narratives, um, but at the same time, there's lots of stuff happening around them um, that is, you know, clearly the same people experiencing the same thing, going through the same kind of process of discovery, who just aren't related to the central characters. They're just like seen occasionally. Like um, there's the bit where she's at uh, a shop. She goes out to pick up some groceries. Uh, this I'm, I'm talking about Michi. Uh, she's going out to pick up some groceries while yung Junko is back at the flat trying to recover from the horrid thing that's happened, uh, which is seeing a ghost. And then she realized she, I think she either sees one of the kind of like signature stains that the ghosts leave or possibly I think like, um, or just sees, you know, what is clearly just a fucked shape of a person through a through a kind of gauzy filter of um I don't even know like, it's behind glass party. it's just yeah. like it's
0: like the batch you can see into the back room of the yeah. of the corner shop yeah and there's just um, like a figure yeah. which just doesn't look because I've watched that because I've, seen, I've seen, I watched that scene a couple of times to try to figure it out and I think it might have been partly sort of like my like old computer monitor but I could not quite yeah. make it out But that's also probably like clearly the point that's like yeah. it's just It looks like a ghost you know it's it's Mm. it's a shape which is familiar but wrong and it's Uh, upsetting to look at
1: and what i kind of like what i hit well what i came across in my reading this is actually in reference to another film but um but it's this idea that the plot is rhizomatic uh that it is um you know as as listeners to buddies without organs will be aware the idea of like you know, a tree is a central kind of like centrally organized, cohesive thing that has a direct line of progression from root to branch to stem to leaf. Uh, a rhizome, uh, like mushrooms or I think grass, uh, is like a kind of distributed um, life form that kind of separates off, parties, partitions off, adapts in different ways. Um, but ha- its union uh, has no center and its function belies not having a centre. I don't know if I'm describing Deleuze-Gatarian philosophy or just mushrooms, but...
0: Like, because the rhizome, like the arboreal progression goes vertical. It has, like, a direction upwards or direction downwards, Mm. but the rhizomatic progression... Is is extension sideways? Is extension into all in all directions essentially? Yeah. That's right? why, No, it's it's a potato. It's a tuber because like yeah. if you've ever if you've ever left a potato in the cupboard for too long, you know exactly what happens. It just spreads, you know. So mm. it just it just gets bits of itself, and the point is kind of like the bits. Like if the bits of itself are all like separable, and then just become potato, right? Mm. Um, which isn't and, something like and, if you yeah. if you hack off a bit like a bit of tree trunk and stick it in soil nothing's going to happen from that you know there's like dedicated like units of a tree which have the function of reproduction um uh yeah. but I- in the way that like a potato like you cut a potato like uh, you get cut a potato in half plant both hearts you get more potato i think maybe mm. not i don't know yeah. how to grow potatoes <laughs> but you but, get the you get the idea you get the idea or like mold yeah. that's a better example
1: yeah and and like essentially um, um yeah, basically, I. This is this is what it looks like to me that it's like it's not you know we're watching the story of uh, Yunko and Michi on their investigation or we're watching uh, Yawashima and Harue, uh trying to you know figure out what's happening at their university. It's a generalized phenomena, uh, and we're getting we have like really two kind hard. of linear paths that we're following, but only so much as that we're able to use them to see. Um, To see the generalized phenomenon happening all around them, Uh, and it's you know progressing in time through them, but it is just a a moment. Yeah, yeah. It's um,
0: invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The the nineteen seventies adaptation, where like the moment the film begins, it's already too late. The world is over like with the, at, the, yeah. at the start of the film and it's just like people like there's no there's nothing especially like heroic in any in anything that happens it is just mm. people who sort of like just just gradual realization how fucked they are like the yeah. and which m- much like the experience of you know the helpless subjects of capital in fact, where there is where where there is this you know the sense of alienation and helplessness where we've realized that yeah. um and that, you know that's the and that is why surely you know sort of like over the course of the two thousands, although it's never quite been able to break into mainstream cinema, um, the great tone of modern contemporary horror fiction is cosmic. is Lovecraftian or yeah. post Lovecraftian. Um, the sense of sort of the encounter encountering things to which we are help, absolutely helpless. And that's the, and, get.
1: and and the, the also the, the postmodern uh rejection of grand meta narratives. Um you know, the, and that the, and the all <laughs> For career of his, yeah, and everything, and, and the fucking cat in kitchen sink and all. And yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, going back to like my, my thing, it's like that's why we're fucking, you know, we're not, we're progressing through this podcast rhizomatically and we're already pretty prone to tangents, but this is going to be nothing but tangents and me trying to desperately attach these uh, various kind of slime mold like tendrils that are going out because it's like, um, okay, just like to tie off that bit to put a like a maybe one hub in this bit you know I wanted to just say like yeah the Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a fantastic example of that but uh, there is actually another film um, that came out a couple of years after that uh, that this is kind of like I you know um, it's called Marabito and it came out in 2004 and I think it's um, it's kind of uh, it is you know, follow, almost kind of like recognizing this as, you know, early on, recognizing this as, you know, the, the appropriate way to make horror stories about contemporary life in Japan and indeed the modern, anywhere in the industrialized world, which is um, rhizomatically. And I, I just want to like, um, just, just you know, go through the Wikipedia summary of this film because it's, um, so also it's the protagonist is played as a man named Masuka. Uh, Masuka uh, played by Shinya Sukamoto, who directed um, te- um, Tetsuo the Iron Man. Hey. Um, but yeah, um, but the, the plot is, Matsuoka, uh, Masuoka carries a camera everywhere he goes. He becomes obsessed with the idea of fear after seeing a frightened man shove a knife into his eye to commit suicide. Wishing to understand the fear the man must have felt before his death, Masuoka descends into the labyrinth the underground beneath the city where he sees human-like creatures and uh, all sorts of weird shit. Uh, while searching the tunnels, Masuoka encounters... Okay basically it cuts constantly between uh different figures and like loses that centrality and it's just like um the phenomenon of fear expressing itself in all these different ways and it was doubling down on the kind of like um pretty you know strongly rhizomatic pe- um patterns of this film and yeah and uh, i think this this goes very strongly into what we were talking about that um, also sounds like yeah. great I, I've, I've never heard yeah. of that i'm gonna I might yeah, watch let's watch it uh, the other thing I was going to say, it's like, I think we do need to get on to kind of like the mythos because there is a mythos um, yes. later on. And I will try and remember it and I will ask you to remember it when we talk about kind of ghosts specifically and the, and the, and the characterization of a ghost in this. But I think just going back to um, to like, you know, the theme of the essay, um, the hybrid reality and um, Japan at, at the end of history um specifically that point about loneliness uh, about dislocation between people and um, and watching people disappear it's like that it's this is you know this is exactly you know it's just a bright on the nose just uh characterization of what that feels like what that looks like watching people sort of people you may have some tie to just drifting off and then you you haven't forgotten them because you don't like them or you're bored of them or something it's just that you the pressures of this life, this world, has disconnected you from them, and they are just going to drift away, and they may as well be dead, and you know, or they're dead to you, and and then, and then like, and then what happens after that? And and this is, this is very, you know, um, we haven't mentioned the name of the director, but it's Kur, um, it's Kurosawa, but a different Kurosawa because he was making films long before this. Um, but uh, yeah, he's like he's using the supernatural as a critique of this this condition and making it, this is the whole thing. It's like, he, he makes his themes nakedly apparent and almost, and very often explicit. And the fact that, you know, um, the fact that like Michi, Yunko and Yabe are connect, you know, initially introduced as a like, uh, team of close-knit um, protagonists, their only co- thing in common is that they're colleagues who also happen to be best friends, because like, presumably they don't have other friends, or they haven't really been able to meet that many people, because work life is so intense that they're always at the office, and so their only friends are ghosts. Or, no, no, their only friends <laughs> are their colleagues. And then when they become ghosts, um, it's like, who do you check in with? Your colleagues? And it's like, oh, were they at the office today? Oh, what's happened? Uh, I guess I know where their flat is? And, yeah, and it's, I know, it's just it's it's very weird and very very potent. But in many
0: ways this is a film about the power of friendship. And yeah. uh, <laughs> and its limits <laughs> uh, and the breakthrough of those limits. Um yeah. I right, I right. shall we right. um, Oh yeah, yeah, there was well, can we mention um, before we get on to talking about internet liminality, mm-hmm. uh, do you want to mention the fun fact about the director's favourite film?
1: Okay, yeah, well, I don't know if it's his favourite. It's it his favourite. That's the line we're going. There. He has confirmed in interviews that his favourite film <laughs> is Tobe Hooper's Life Force, based okay. on. Um, Based on the novel of Colin Wilson. The Space
0: and, Vampires.
1: Yeah, <laughs> space Vampires. And I guess that, in its own way, was uh, a rhizomatic plot analysis of <laughs> a, an event unfolding where horny vampires are shooting lasers and running about um, recognizable locations in London. Sean, just like as an aside, because I think uh, our audience needs one at this point, but have you listened to Weird Studies? Because there was a fun, someone pointed out a fun tweet that like, they're very similar to us, both in content name and structure. And the, <laughs> I, I don't know who these people are, but apparently like the only main difference is that, um, is that like, they like... Colin Wilson, and we really don't. And I'm just imagining kind of like the Shadow Universe from Star Trek, uh, <laughs> where like Shadow Universe Sean doesn't have a beard. Um, they are both pres-
0: bearded men. I'm looking at them now. I, I this actually is the. Um, I've not listened to him, but I have heard of them. I'm certain they're absolutely lovely people who do a great podcast. But uh, I don't know. They do like Colin Wilson, though. Also, like a bit of trivia. Like, I only found this out. It's not trivia, even. It's a fact about Colin Wilson's life. It's just information, Sean. It's just information. But I found out about Colin Wilson only after we recorded Life Force. And I kind of like made me. Uncomfortable with like the characterization that made of him as just sort of like this kind of you know, sort of like fun guy doing philosophy in his shed was his fat, was the fact that he was a fascist. And I don't mean that in the kind of like girl fascist sense, but like he wrote like an article in support of Oswald Mosley for so, sort of like a magazine that one of like Mosley's like colleagues founded called Lodestar. Like, and so it's like he actually did have like quite suspect politics. Was
1: he like <laughs> almost in the kind of Evolian tradition? tradition of super fascism one might say
0: i don't know but i will say yes
1: yeah i think for the po- you know, party line on this podcast is yes colin wilson is I a super s- fascist <laughs> but also go listen to a weird I'm yeah.
0: certain. That I, 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 like, we Mid should studies. probably let's make friends with them. I'm certain they're absolutely, yeah, uh, like, it. like, just let's, let's yeah. do it. Let's, 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 do, hang it. Out. let's do it. Let's do it. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's probably like connected to sort of like something you you see in like Colin Wilson's ideas is the whole sort of like heroism, the rising above, um, the intrepid spirit, and all of that. And all of that can like super easily take you Jeez. into sus it's territory. He was an
1: uncritical plagiarist with very limited scope of self-reflection. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, can we talk about the internet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Okay, so okay. one factor that we actually haven't talked about very much at all yet is how much this film is just... People being very afraid of computers and the internet, correctly so. Um, <laughs> this is in many ways an unheeded uh, warning of a film. <laughs> um, so I think it's important to bear in mind that this film came out in 2001. So, um, and I kind of just like thinking about my own life with the internet as a millennial. Um, mm-hmm. So, 2001. Uh, we knew what the internet was, but it wasn't ubiquitous yet, right? It was it was something that was kind of breaking its way into ordinary life, uh, and something that you might have interactions with, but in quite specific circumstances. You know, like um, e- this is the age of dial-up internet. This is the age of the internet cafe, and all of that. It's when like yeah. it's Can not mention, eh- like the, yeah. The dialogue hasn't...
1: sound is in the opening sting of the film. Yeah, it's it's, the it's, it
0: hasn't. Yeah, the internet hadn't totally parasitized upon us yet. It's something basically at this point. The internet's for nerds and perverts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, both of which are we.
1: Um, so, did you just drop a? Was that a Cruel Intentions um, call out?
0: What, what? What was?
1: No, no, that's a like. Uh, e- no, no, that's the line. Emails for uh, nerds and pedophiles. That's <laughs> <some laughs> Cruel Intentions.
0: Uh, that was that. At least, not consciously. It wasn't. It just came to me. But it's also quite an obvious line, isn't it? So I must have picked that from somewhere. Anyway, mm-hmm. anyway. So so so. This means that, like, at this point, like, people don't don't really like get what what the internet's about, right? It's a bit weird. It's a bit mysterious. It's a bit threatening. I've actually just put my notes here in brackets. It makes your children smell like hammers. You know, It's <laughs> But more. Uh, but at the same time, you know, in like in two thousand two thousand one more and more people not just uh, nerds and perverts are getting into it and an analogy I kind of thought of which I quite like um, is it's almost like the start of an alien invasion film in some ways you know sort of like it's this thing that's kind of like coming into our lives quite quickly and even if you're not into it yet you know someone who is into it and there's also this big push Mm. you know to get us all onto it you know sort of like everybody gets a dial-up cd rom mm. in the post from aol stuff like that so it's very much like and as indeed literally it was it was this you know except it was just you know business um yeah. pushing us into this because like ever because you know the people in veno realize that this is going to be the game yeah. changer and so there is this big thing to get everybody as connected, quote-unquote, as possible. And that's, like, the most obvious theme. And it uh, uh, in this film, sort of, like, we think computers have made us connected, but what if they haven't? Uh, mm-hmm. So you can accuse it maybe of being a little bit boomer, except you would be wrong to do so because it is right, you know? <laughs> like, it's sort of, like, you know, it has been of, like... No one's going to deny that it's a mixed blessing, you know. That's the most obvious fucking point that someone could make about the internet mm. revolution and all of that. So I, and
1: yeah, I have a point to make before we delve too too hard into like the critical territory surrounding like what this means. But um, but like I think just like just to just uh, tie in with what you're saying. Um, so well, two things specifically. Um, one is the fact that like so yeah like the internet. It was 1993 when it properly became, like, universally accessible, quote-unquote, universally accessible, and that anyone could use it. Before that, it had been kind of, like, around in experimental forms for, like, actually decades at that point, initially with the military, and then it was, like, basic, pretty much, like, database sharing between universities and research institutes, uh, and naturally the military. Um, And, um, but also, like, there was sort of, like, beneath it, there was also a... um, there was also kind of like already an underground, underground kind of network of things emerging that were not quite connected, but like a sort of quasi internet building up between you know communities who would have, I don't even know what it what it was, but there would be like localized networks and people could like use phones to like download from like a server and things, but it had to be like you know specific things and it had to be arranged largely offline. Um, but it's also worth pointing out that like. Among the first people who um, really hit upon this, um, you know, this as a new medium were conspiracy theorists and UFO people who um, who were like, you know, Owl using people. what limited resources they could manage to, to get connected. And this was even before kind of like the proto Reddit shit like Usenet. Um, so that, well, this is that's this is
0: of, your yeah. territory, right? This is your yeah. own gunman where hacking is just like this this thing, where you, this this plot device you can just throw out there to solve all the problems you need about how mm. characters can learn things because yeah. it's a black and box of of a discipline.
1: The other thing I was going to say, and this is probably kind of going to chime with that, what um, what I what I see, see what I'm seeing in the notes here, is the fact that like now we're concerned about people lying on the internet, but I found like a huge part of the '90s was people lying about the internet (laughs) offline like lying about what the internet actually was and i don't say like being misinformed or um or kind of you know extrapolating on things they've like half understood i mean literally lying Like, um, like, you know, I had a friend at school who, and I'm still kind of sore about this, who, like, just claimed, like, when his game was loading, he was like, oh yeah, this is gonna take a while because it's downloading from America, and I was like, oh cool, are you, like, on AOL? And they were like, no, we don't have the internet here, but it is downloading from America. And, like, you know, that was a child, yes, but, um, but, like, um, I... Encountered an adult at a dinner party Who claimed that they wanted to look up The nation a flag flag belonged to So they looked up worldflags.com And they were encountered with loads of hardcore pornography And I know for a fact that didn't happen (laughs) But people just thought they could say shit like this And people would believe them Because the internet is a strange, unknowable thing And who's to say that's not a thing? You know, (laughs) are you going to look it up? Because if you claim to look it up, then clearly you wanted to see all this porn. Um, What are you, gay? What are you, gay? Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: And actually, yeah, and and
0: indeed, go. And indeed, sort of like, cause uh, like g- going through my notes here, indeed, sort of like a big part of my sort of like relationship with the internet was discovering that actually I was. Uh, <laughs> I just, i just gonna like absolutely just splay myself on like out here and say the sort of like yeah, like I would sometimes like accidentally Google gay porn, so, oh no, what <laughs> these damn hands of mine once again. <laughs> oh, God. Christ um but yeah like and and I, and this is actually something I do want to talk about though um the 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 role of like rumor and misinformation and and the folkloric elements of like early 2000s internet stuff where there is like like the folkloric elements kind of like exist obviously exist inside of it but also a lot of it is outside of it it's the, and it is stuff you talk about at school because um I w- actually, I wasn't like a, a, a especially kind of like Plugged in as a teenager with, with these things, like because my, my parents were like extremely protective about sort of like about these things, um, and like I never knew about like four chan until literally until university, honestly, um, and they had like so quite a few like the classic horrible things <laughs> that people like uh, like never knew about the internet. I like, like discovered sort of actually saw like much later on, but even then, like at school, like I remember, I remember at primary school actually um, here about um, uh, origa- the origami kittens hoax, you know, the um- you know about oh, the
1: bonsai kittens.
0: Bonsai kittens, sorry, not origami they, kittens, yeah. Uh yeah. Well, I suppose that'd be fundamentally the same thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, which was completely like was and it was and I think actually, like, if I remember correctly, that whole thing was just like a study and let's see if we can actually just like get people to believe in something that's kind of like patently untrue. And like this and if and if people and it occurs to me like people might actually not have encountered this, but this was this was like a bit of this was an urban legend basically that said there was a website where you could like Buy kittens that had been like, like oh, it's really gross. So like the idea of, sort of like like fetal kittens were sort of like being like scooped out and put in while alive, be put into sort of like especially like shaped glass things. So they come we need out. A content like,
1: warning for this section of the cast. Yeah, actually, maybe yeah. We should.
0: Yeah, it was too yeah. late now. But yeah, and oh, obviously yeah. this was and like that's not true. You can't do that. That's impossible. I hope. Mm. And and there and there yeah, this and this was the thing that people remember people talking about. And then later on, you get kind of like like, the stories, but, like, like the horrible shock videos, like, two girls, mm. one cup and stuff like that, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He went to prison yeah. for that, the guy who made it. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: there was an interesting article about, like, the legal suit uh, that followed it. Because, um, actually, no, there was, like, there's this really weird... No, I don't want to defame it, like, there's this really interesting lawyer who um, specifically takes up cases of things like that, and I think um, he... There's an article about, like, he him defending a guy who was found to have harboured on his hard drive a picture of a woman having sex with a tiger. And then in court, it had to be, like, in literally documented legal proceedings, it was pointed out, that like, no, this isn't a picture of a woman having sex with a tiger. This is a still from a video. And when you see the video, it is very clearly fake. Um, and if it's not obvious that it's fake... Up until, you know, throughout you know, for the main the first two thirds of the video, it becomes abundantly clear that it's fake when the tiger awkwardly turns to screen and says, That's great, doing the Tony the Tiger voice from the serial adverts. <laughs> um Oh god. This is maybe we need a different podcast for this kind of chat. <laughs> <laughs> we need um, our own side stories or something.
0: Nerds and perverts. Nerds and perverts. Phenomenology.
1: Uh, the internet. <laughs>
0: oh god okay this, so this,
1: this is the boy heidegger or which was the who was the one that became a nazi that I talked about briefly sorry who who was the main phenomenology guy martin he- what, heidegger uh, yeah he didn't he wasn't no i'm mixing him up with
0: someone else who oh, yeah no, he was like famously a nazi yes uh, we? yeah <laughs> uh folks, yeah. speaking of phenomenology um yeah, like so, yeah, so like I think I think the scene's been set here, sort of, you know, like the mm-hmm. internet was even more like weird, dark, and threatening in poply, popular imagination in the two thousands, and it is now. Where sort of like it is still weird, dark, and threatening, but just in like more mundane ways about sort of like you know just like data tracking and and things like and things like that. Um, but yeah, so but I'm gonna talk a, a little bit about. The actual like phenomenological experience of being online, uh, and 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 what that means, because it is actually something that's quite. It, the more you think about it, it's so, all like the weird and kind of more interesting it it, it gets. Um, and, you know, just a tiny, tiny little bit of intro to like, it, Phenomenology 101, you know, it's, it's, it's the philosophical study of, like, experience qua experience of what it's actually like to experience anything at all and what the conditions are of any experience at all, um, what the conditions for particular experiences as opposed to other experiences are and so on. And, like, importantly, like, traditionally at least, like, Phenomenology has kind of, like, tended to put metaphysical questions back like the reality of things beyond our experiences sort of put them to one side saying they were talking about the experiences not metaphysical speculations what lie beyond them and obviously caveat caveat about so oversimplifying complicated philosophy yada 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 uh anyway so all right so to begin right what do with what do we interact the, 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 the through what do we interact with the internet and We all know this, thanks to Charlie Brooker, through the black mirror, right? Mm. However, already that's not right, because when we actually are using it, the mirror is not black. It's illuminated, and when it's doing its job properly, it's not only illuminated, it is totally engrossing and has captured all of our attention. You know, it isn't Mm. void, well, well, maybe it is void, but it's not... Staring into, staring into uh, the blackness of a dark mirror, it is lights. It is um, display. It's movement accompanied with sound, right? plasma. It pl- it's yeah. it
1: fluid. <laughs> yes. Uh,
0: even though the screen never like, literally takes up our entire visual field or cancel out all of the rest of our sensorium, it is what occupies us. It is to what we are disposed, right? so and then there is the matter of what is being shown and it's always possible that we will lose focus and stop paying attention to the screen and its contents if something external of it comes along but when we're engaged with it we're not engaged with the screen We've already, further beyond that already, we're engaged with what it's displaying, with text, with image, with video or, or game. It is the display that is the proper site of our attention, not the screen as a rectangle of pixels or, you know, like a, a container of, of fluids. The display, when it captures us, is what we attend to, what our, to what our attention is drawn. And we're going to do a little bit of, like, phenomenological wordplay here, because I've already said that this is what occupies us. And there's the double usage of the word occupy, right? You know, sort of like I am occupied by something or the place is occupied, right? The idea of something taking root in in us or setting itself up in our awareness, that we become occupied by what it is that is occupying us, right? And everything I've said so far could also refer to a television or cinema screen. So we have to introduce more um, clarity here in order to talk about the distinct experience of being online. And that is when we watch a film or a TV show... Yes, we can stop it, pause it, rewind, or fast-forward it, or anything like that. But we aren't in control of the show, or the film. We've submitted ourselves to a ready-made experience, which has already been created for us, and is now presented to us. Our freedom relating to it is more like the experience of contemplating a painting in a gallery, almost. We can move where we stand and shift our perspective. Uh, we could take out a magnifying glass, if you want to be that kind of person in the gallery, or we can like, walk away from it, even but the experience the painting is a settled quantity right and that isn't really what happens when we go online although each individual website we arrive on is something that has already been you know ready made right um our experience of surfing the web as we used to say back in the 90s and the 2000s is very much mm-hmm. one where we perceive ourselves as being in the driving seat. We follow chains of intuition by following chains of links. We follow where our interests are pulling us or where our interests are being pulled. Phenomenologically speaking, it is more like a journey, traversing an experiential landscape, uh, traversing zones of intensity. In a sense, in the sense of the moving of our awareness and our attention, we're moving through a space, through yeah. cyberspace. Yeah. Um, it's more like walking through a city. We we might be familiar with it, or we might not be familiar with it, or we might go along a familiar path and turn off somewhere unfamiliar. Right. Mm. So, I'm going to talk a little bit more now about liminality. Mm -hmm. And the liminal is, I mean, I at this point just have a fucking klaxon for the word liminal, right? The Uh liminal is one of those like really abused and overused terms. And that's a real shame because it actually talks about something I think is really, really interesting. Um, So we've talked about liminality before on this podcast. um, But in essence, like a, a definition for it, when we describe a place or an event as liminal, we mean that it has the character of a threshold. It's a boundary that leads to somewhere else, into something unknown and mysterious. It is a place which is initiatory. It's it's strange. It's transformative. It's potentially dangerous. It is a space where encounters with the outside happen, which aren't necessarily good encounters, right? Mm. And that's why, and and what the internet is, it is it does have that character of liminality. Um, It's a a set of possibilities, it's it's thresholds, it's unexpected encounters, and it can provide us with experiences which are transformative or destructive. Um, And this is why, you know, I've been emphasising the threatening character of the internet. And this is something that was kind of more true back when this film was made, when it was more of an unknown quantity. Uh, and like I mean, we've already mentioned, you know, like internet shock videos that you'd like sh- get shown by your classmates and stuff like that. You know, people, people doing things to themselves or having things done to them and stuff like that. And, you know, there's that telling phrase that people still use about wanting to be able to unsee something, mm-hmm. you know. And, and the thing is that it's still true now. I You know, it's, it is more like sanitized. It's safer to use, but it is still... You're never more than a few clicks away From seeing something you just really Didn't want to see You know Mm. And there have actually been some films That have done a somewhat, somewhat, I'll be, be generous, no I'll be generous and say i have done like a good or at least a, an effective job of com- of conveying that, the one the film I have in mind specifically is actually Unfriended to Dark Web um, yeah. which is this, ah um, oh, fuck me, there's a, there's a specific word for it but that kind of like found footage movie where it's just like what's being seen on the computer monitor for the whole film uh, like Host, that Shudder movie, that really really good Shudder movie is an example of that and like Unfriended, I don't need to see that it's it's really good. It's really fun. Uh, but yeah, Un- Un- Unfriended 2, which was like, it was a film that made me feel really gross after I watched it. Actually, I didn't. I didn't enjoy it. I don't think it was trying to. I don't think it was going for that. But um, it's about like this 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 guy who. Um, Basically steals this Apple Mac uh, from the lost and found of his cafe, and he's using it. And basically, what he discovers when he's like playing around with his mates um, over Skype is that um, it has like a protocol built into it that gives him access to a snuff video uh, ring, and like the guy whose laptop it is he stole and like made videos for them, like abducting women and then killing them on demand, and like uh, and like sending the footage over Bitcoin and shit like that, and. And, and that kind of thing, you know, sort of like it's, um, oh, like, stuff like that does happen, you know, and there is, like, you can have these, like, moments of awareness where you kind of, like, when you end up, like, reading about something horrible like that, or, like, maybe, like, I've been watching some videos on this, this YouTube channel called by, by a guy called Nick, Nick Crowley, Nick Crowley's kind of a, this American okay. kid who does, like, um video they're like i'm not i'm not sure um no they're they're, they're like entertaining bits of sort of like spooky spookiness like just they're videos the one about who did the vid-
1: video about anatomy um no i'm thinking someone
0: else no i don't think so. i don't know but he does like oh, do you okay. just like videos about like horrible shit on youtube basically stuff like that and uh and things like that but yeah the um and um i've lost my train of thought sorry but yeah the when you like read about sort of like the things that people do online and mm. and stuff like that or like like i said like what youtube videos about sort of like the sickest things that people do and all of that you have these kind of like moments where you can kind of like look at your computer and like realize that sort of like this machine i have in my home could like take me to somewhere that might like actually like permanently like damage my soul almost you know
1: psychic damage yeah
0: I mean, generally. I mean, like generally. Like, there's like I have like ended up like reading about stuff online, like which like I like get to the end of like the Wikipedia article about something horrible and think, you know, what well, I was happy in not knowing that. Yeah. You know, actually, I mean... want. Yeah. So you you can say something. Yeah,
1: no, I think I think like what what you're saying, especially like kind of calling back, I guess, to um, what you're talking about with like surfing the web and it being kind of you are in the driving seat, ha- engaging in this activity. I guess like then I mean, and this is what I always found with like kind of you know, that that encountering something genuinely unacceptable on the internet that um that makes you want to log off. Um I guess it's especially permanent pertinent to, you know, the specifically internet phenomenon because like if you see something on television, you're like, oh god, you know, that's gonna fuck with me. You know, that's that I didn't want to see that. Um uh, but that's because you've like seen you, you know you turned it on at the wrong time you flicked to the wrong channel whereas with the internet it's like it's almost like well you did come here you know and you wanted to you, see yeah this. you wanted to see this you all like if you didn't want to see this you wanted to see something similar or you wanted to see something related and it's like well here's yourself reflected back at you here's the logical end point of where your thoughts are gonna go and yeah like that's and that is extremely disturbing and actually Um,
0: what we were were saying there about the um about how sort of like a lot of the horrors of the internet we understand to be somewhat more mundane but like you know out the algorithms is something that needs to be need need to be talked about here because like one of the things that they do like there's a lot of people have like talked about you know how like the you know youtube is a machine for making nazis right because like like extreme content um in, in 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 any like understanding of that um generates more interaction so algorithmically it always tends to be favored so you do have this like the black box of the internet there's just the machinery turning around behind the scenes that you're not aware of is working to show you these things as well because it knows it, because that drives engagement you know mm-hmm. right? that's that's something that happens there was an article i read in um i think it was an eon a few years ago that was talking about that specifically about internet pornography, not in terms of, I don't mean like CP illegal stuff like that, but just kind of like using like, like using pornography frequently online, how like algorithmically it tends to funnel you to like more niche stuff as time goes on. Just because of that, again, just because of those same processes of like everybody has a niche like with whatever content it is that you're 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 interacting with online everybody's got a niche which is their thing the thing that they're interested in and part of the job of a search, you know this is literally the job of a search engine is to find that for you and expose you to it and mm. um, but that logic that those mechanisms work all the way down and you do and it, and it was that's why and this is you know like a joke almost you know people talk about how like uh at least the straights do um okay. on on Pornhub how sort of like you just get like a real hard sell of like incest porn and like step brethren step brethren and like um, step family stuff like that's just like a thing that gets like really like thrown to the fr- front page and again it is those because that's like well people click on it because that's kind of weird right mm-hmm. um no judgment or anything like that to what people what people's stuff is right you know, but but yeah. at the same time you know like there's a kind of a two-way it. there is the sense of and this is the Lovecraftian cosmic thing again right you know there's the sense of sort of like you opened the book you know you did look at an necronomicon right but at the same time like you, you were funneled we <laughs> there you know the forces outside of you taking you there because they want you there as well because then you buy the Necronomicon merch. You buy, yeah. the, oh god, now I'm imagining. Or you twisted my... the
1: lament configuration.
0: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. but, but as 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 um, Pinhead tells us, it is desire that calls us, not merely hands. Mm. So maybe it is yeah. all our fault ultimately. Yeah. And um, yeah. And just to kind of like bring it back to the film itself a little bit here, because um, I've been talking a lot about how like the 2000s of it all, and you know like what the frightening internet liminal thing is in this film it's a website that that brings ghosts into your life right uh mm. it's a haunted it's a haunted website it's haunted internet and that's something that like feels so perfectly of its time that mm. right you know sort of like uh how you can you know so sort of, i guess it's you know, sort of like you can imagine being told at school like if you go to this website um you'll see a ghost. I mean you go onto the website, I mean there'll just be like two old dudes like finger banging each other in a dick or something like <laughs> that. <laughs> if so... politics
1: left you bitter, go to lemonparty.org.
0: <laughs> I think that's one I did fool for actually at school. There was uh...
1: <laughs> That was on the fucking like notice board at the student union at UEA once for like for an upsettingly long time. Uh, yeah. Just just a just a big old slice of two thousand seven culture right there.
0: <laughs> or oh, what was the other one sort of like uh, oh yeah like uh, look up this fun game website called penisland.com oh no not penis land
1: <laughs> I think someone did actually jump on that and like made it a pen website for you know some fucking genius realised you could just buy the url because like the people who did making the joke didn't think to do that um, but yeah no, I kind of like uh, the thing about like I guess, you know, when we're talking about the algorithm, and this is something that kind of, like, is hitting on the ghost ang- you know, the ghost specifics angle of the film that I wanted to touch on more later, but I think there is a pertinent comparison to be made here in the fact that when we talk about the ghosts, uh, we're talking about, um, it's not, like, malicious ghosts. It's not, like, a wronged spirit coming to attack someone to wreak some terrible vengeance. It's just the accumulated weight of human suffering frozen in death in, like, the- and you know seeping into the material of the world and um crossing over into like um you know people in the living world uh, people occupying that same material reality yeah. and and the reason why i mean like i think just um so just a, another another tangent but i swear this is going to be one of my last is is the fact that, like one of the most upsetting things i ever read about spooky internet or you know upsetting internet which shit wasn't like oh some like cult of narcissists or some fake shock site stuff it was um youtube children's videos yeah um, specifically the algorithmically generated ones where it's like um it's just taking bits and pieces from like um you know search terms iso stuff just to like make sure it's perfectly optimized to go onto people's autoplay Uh, but this means that there's no kind of like authorial hand there's no control and so you get like you know iron man and the hulk and finger puppet uh finger what is it finger family or whatever just like just dumb kid shit that you know is eerie on its own but getting mixed into like upsetting configurations where it's like the term buried alive was just in the title of one of the videos and stuff and there's just tons of shit like this i'll try and find the article and share it. yeah i can't remember who who wrote it but
0: but yeah, the article was called There Was something wrong on the internet." Yeah, it was and, just a medium post, I think. but it was Yeah, very good. and uh, Dan Olson, who is not a friend of the podcast, but is a friend of a friend of the podcast, uh, that is yeah. N- uh, Nick Spears. Hi, Nick. Um, hey. uh Yeah, did a really good little video about that as well. Which, mm. uh, yeah, which is also quite quite fun, and he's he's got a nice soothing Canadian voice. Um, <laughs> and actually, I will mention, I will, I do actually want to talk about Nick Spears a little bit because she's done a really good, uh, kind of like a follow up, I think, to the uh video series she did last year around the time we interviewed her or not interviewed her but had her on no, the podcast to Talk about on. martyrs. yeah sorry yeah, um yeah. uh where she did that series of like just like horrible films where <laughs> she kind of like did a revisiting of that where she worked her way through all of the movies on the TikTok disturbing movie iceberg um and that and uh, yeah and it's kind of like uh, and that actually, obviously, that loops in quite neatly with, and you get the impression almost that sort of like I don't, I don't use TikTok. I kind of like, I'm very much an older man about TikTok. I don't get it, but um, it does feel like a little bit right, because it's a Gen Z thing, it's it, you can kind of like see like repetitions of the same like patterns that we went through, or like these uh. kids like being online and showing their experiences and kind of like discovering sort of like upsetting films and things like that, and and yeah, and what she, what uh, what Nick does. Over a series of videos talking about the disturbing movie Iceberg, it kind of like starts off with like just ordinary horror movies, like uh, some of which are good, some of which are bad, and then just like goes and then like it passes, goes through like the independent upsetting art movie like threshold at some point and then you get sort of like the incre- like the weird like compilations of scat porn and things like that um that people have put together all of which is like you can get off of like torrenting sites or like off of like the easier to access bits of the dark and stuff like that um but i remember sort of like that actually kind of like, fucked me up a little bit that, um um that, that that series that she did, like I didn't obviously I didn't search any of this stuff out because I don't. Why would why would I? <laughs> but uh, it was just kind of like being made aware of stuff I am aware of consciously. I know that people sort of like, do want to watch sort of like two hour long compilations of people being smeared with feces, but um, like just being made like aware of the fact that sort of like, oh, there's so much of this, like so readily available on there, did really ruin my day. And I had like weird fucked up dreams afterwards of sort of like, I don't really remember the content of them as such, just like dreams of like watching like horrible shit in the film. And it being like, I don't want this. I don't want to think about this. Um, <laughs> and this is again sort of like the idea about you know the 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 liminality of being online, where the where it is dangerous and. And you can take your psychic damage. You get you, you lose sanity points being mm. online. Not only because you have to interrupt like fucking boomers with their laugh cry emojis on Twitter and 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 and, and, and turf shit and all of that, you know, horrible horrible stuff. Mm. I suppose this is actually a lot more real and affects people's lives more directly than the esoteric shit we're talking about. But also just like the awareness, sort of like there's all sorts of like freaky shit online. <laughs> you know, it's the yeah. most mundane point I could possibly make, right? Mm. But sort of like you can like find just videos of people being murdered and I don't I don't mean I don't mean that in you know sort of like the snuff movie sense of there being like massive like industries of his stuff but I just mean like literally you know you can just like find videos of sort of like that people who have uploaded of themselves killing someone like there is a thing you can find very easily or people torturing animals I mean, and stuff I'm pretty like sure that. you can
1: like right this minute find the like the guy who live streamed on Facebook the killing spree yeah, it's yeah, that's there, that, that
0: And this is, you know, why, like, I resist, although, like, the characterisation in the film I offered earlier of it being about how technology hasn't made us, is actually made mm. us more isolated. Why I don't think, as boomer as that sounds, I also maintain that that is that is right, though, because it's mm. like, what kind of connectivity is that, though? Sort of like, mm. where is all sort of the connectivity of just exposing ourselves one ourselves constantly to the worst possible moments of human yeah. experience?
1: Yeah. I think. I have a good segue if we're ready to start talking about like physical spaces.
0: Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Also, this next bit coming up, listener, is the introduction to a new section of Weird Signal, which is Sean forgot to type up his notes, so he'll be referring to his <laughs> handwritten notes in the great big notebook and trying yeah. to read my handwriting. <laughs> um, I also just want to point out, just just for the sake of like palate cleansing, pure humor, that the program that um they use to get on that the, the the web browser software is called uranus and i do have a note uh-huh. here well, i just sort of like for old oh, to look that up to see if it was real or something like that, But i did just write look up uranus uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, i mean like yeah
1: it was maybe that's a fucking batai shout out or something it's like <laughs> the solaranus is the internet i don't know that's that's too much of a tangent to go in here but like yeah and i was thinking yeah, like if guess- it was
0: like saturn because that's the thing. So sort far, of like, it should have been Saturn. Because that's the uh, yeah yeah that's the, that's, Mercury, the, that's the Deathly one. That's the Deathly. I planet. guess someone
1: probably already had Mercury because you know got a common shit. The BBC already have a statue of them. But no, no, they have a statue of Prospero and Ariel. Anyway, but basically, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, no. So, like, we've talked about like you know the the horrors of the online thing and it's kind of how it can how this can specifically affect you in a real plethora of different uncanny ways. Um, But like, I think like, that isn't so much kind of what this film is about. And I don't know, not to like, I think it was important that we talked about that. (laughs) I wasn't like saying like, oh, Sean, I don't think you've got this actually. But um, basically um, with regard to to this film and how it actually treats the subject matter, I think I'm gonna make the second, of possibly three kind of direct analogy or like direct kind of parallels slash dichotomy slash contrasts uh between this and ring uh because i do think like this is thought of as kind of like the the less successful or less famous version of of ring but it does have like very very fundamental differences and i think kind of um what ring rings engagement with the kind of like it isn't even about the internet. It's about, like, kind of video media. But it does have that kind... You know, there's a direct comparison between, you know, uh, the TV starting up and the ghost coming out and the computer starting up spontaneously in that scene in uh, in uh, in uh, um, uh, Kawashima's flat uh, where he's asleep and then the computer's switched on and it's got a life of its own. And, like, you know, I thought about it in those same terms. as like, uh, it's this big scary thing that... Um, is always there it's like we've brought something we've brought a direct kind of through line to this kind of weird primordial you know scary beyond that now has a direct interface with our private space but i realize like you know that is very much the point of ring that like we've surrounded ourselves with this media and it's given something a means of attacking us but with with um with uh with with a uh, Cairo, with a uh, with pulse uh, or um to use the term circuits uh, is it is the literal translation um what it seems to be more is like um that's almost secondary and um that like the the presence of the online is um pretty much to kind of show up the um the kind of emptiness or the something being wrong in physical space in, in the, you know, in IRL. And, um, and, you know, it just being a kind of like um, a, an emphasis of that. And I guess like kind of what I'm, I want to return to that point because I think it illustrates something that I found very significant about this film in its use of space. And this also goes back to um, what I was talking about with regard to, you know, what uh Kurosawa is depicting in this film is the 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 horrors of a detached um scary intense reality of you know post economic crash post end of history japan um and so it's like kind of the f- and sp- the p- the point specifically where i talk about the end of history it's like um the kind of uh the globe you know um Actually, there's a, I guess, like, this is where I'm going to bring in, this is a text I brought, I just picked up in, in, uh, at work, which I, um, have my own critiques of, but it made a very interesting point where it talks about, um, the kind of, uh, late capitalism creating, well, it's called, uh, it's by Mark Augay, and it's called, uh, Non-Places, An Introduction to Supermodernity. And it talks about how, um, kind of, it talks about like you know the extent of how capitalism working through its most agreeable form which is you know the online world has um has changed the shape of the physical world in that it's kind of it's created non-spaces it's created kind of cities that no longer exist as um exist purely as kind of like um his you know f- uh, grew up organically in the way cities um do you know linked to the landscape linked to the resources and such it's like cities now existing as just hubs within a global network and their existence being split um between uh the um you know the the just the the crawling chaos of um globalization embodied in the online world you know phantasmally embodied in the online world and um what he talks about actually is is the fact that like physical space has been changed by globalization now we're surrounded by kind of glitzy kind of airports and places that only exist for kind of like pure consumption pure advertising pure capital pure spending and pleasure associated with the late capital condition of like this is your existence now um and i think um and you know and one of uh, the pertinent lines he talks, well, yeah, like he, I think he's drawing a lot on like Paolo Verrillo. I think, I can't remember the specific bit, but um, the specific work he refers to, but it talks about how kind of like uh, modern consciousness is, uh, especially existing in cities, is not to exist in the city, but to exist kind of in physical space with a constant awareness that the ground under your feet is um is part you know is only valid because of its greater you know of the significance lent to it by the turbulent unknowable other of the global system um and how you know and like when people talk about liminal spaces they do talk about shopping malls and airports these things that are kind of inhuman, because they're meant to kind of cater to only a small part of human nature, which is desire and consumption, and that um, they act to kind of abnegate um, abnegate other parts of human experience by drowning it out in glitter and, and neon light. And also, you know, like kind of we talk about, you know, globalization, especially from the 90s onwards, was these utopian ideas about that same glitz, that same kind of intensity of experience uh, being engaged with online. Um, And this was especially, you know, true to, um, you know, and this this experience was heightened all the more by being Japanese in that way I described in the introduction, by having your whole identity defined by the modernity that you're seeing in this system. Um, But that's not what we see in the film. The horror of this film is, like, what's left when the computer is switched off, when you log off, when, like all your attention, all your kind of, like, life and lived experiences online, and then, like, you switch it off and what you're left with is the the heavy kind of dark, neglected, cold space around you that is physical but now alien to you and seeming, and, you know, and haunted by this cognitive disconnect between yourself and your surroundings. Um And, and just, like, yeah, and I, I think that's, I think, well, I think it's pertinent to point out that um, I think in the quote I've, in a part I've, um, I've highlighted in this, uh, it talks about how, um, yeah, where is that? Well, yeah, it it's sort of like, it talks about, you know, that is the status of modern condition, but uh, he's riffing on Paolo Varillo, who is himself riffing significantly on, um, on you know, our nemesis on this podcast, who is... Japanese guy, name escapes me, and wrote the end of Francis Fukuyama. No, he's riffing on Francis Fukuyama. And it's like, yeah, no, I'm claiming Kurosawa as an ally in our kind of uh, sceptical deconstruction of, uh, you know, this supposed natural element of political ecology that it's just natural to engage with it in these terms and to sign your life over to global capital because there is no other way. And it's like, no, like, this is what he's showing us is the horror of the world that's created by sucking so much out of it. And that's why, you know, these people are haunted by ghosts, which is why, you know, which is, you know, another kind of like stylistic element of the film that is both thematically important and also just fantastically well done is just the visuals of this film. It's always dark spaces, um, you know, haunted like apartment blocks where you don't see anyone. Um, it's also very much kind of like, you know, I always, I don't know, like, um I know you, I've got a point coming up, but like, I think it's like, the every bit looks like when you accidentally open the service door at an amusement park and you realise, oh, there's guys with mops in here. You know, that's the world, that's the actual kind of world that's happening here. This is all just show. And it's the kind of the hauntedness of that reality. Mm. And yeah, and I think, you know, that's, that is the that is the core of the horror here. And then like the ghosts, as we'll probably talk about soon, are just like symptomatic of like what what has come from that process.
0: Yeah, there's a few remarks I want to make about space as well. Um, and the you, you for almost the entire film, like like it begins with like there's the sea and there's the ship that she's on and that's how the film ends. Um and you see a train going through countryside at night. Other than that, you only ever see high-rise apartments and industrial sites and shops. That's all you see in this film. Um, there is, and it is just concrete, just grey concrete uh, mm. and and rust and like a dirty, grimy chrome and overcast grey skies. That's all there is. There's no... Nothing alive in this film, you know, and I think it's it's interesting, that, you know, that they work at the florist, but like at the same time, the flowers or mm-hmm. none of the plants look like especially healthy. But yet, yeah, and there is the <laughs> sense that um, you know they are trapped in this world of total artificiality. But that's what modernity is. There is mm-hmm. just total artificiality. I remember there's a bit in uh, in Crash, the JG Ballard novel, where the protagonist like. Uh, uh looks around like the apartment complex he lives in, and he realizes he's entirely enveloped in in artifice, in, in the new machinery of living. There's nothing organic here, and that's true of this film film as well. And because uh, when I I wanted to, initially, I was going to bring up Gaston Bachelard, the uh, the uh-huh. French the French phenomenologist who wrote a book called The Poetics of Space, mm-hmm. but I realized after reading about like fifty pages of it that I couldn't. Because Bachelard is talking about houses, and not apartments, and I realised that is the difference here. You never oh. see a house in this, you know, <laughs> like like um, callback to, ha- to to house, right? You never see a house in this. Uh, you see apartment blocks. That's all there mm. is, and there, is, and that's what, and I and I realised a more interesting theorist to bring up was was actually it was, uh, Georges Perec. Um, Another French phenomenologist um, <laughs> who wrote, uh, who, who wrote in um, *Species of Spaces*, uh, uh, a series of things about uh, about living in an apartment. And we're precise and trying to find exactly what it was I was uh, thinking of. He says here because he talks a lot, he talks a lot about things here. <laughs> but but yeah, well, he, he, but yeah, basically, actually, oh, I might not read anything from this. I didn't actually like okay. underline. What I wanted to bring out, but basically, yeah, he talks about like stuff that. Is 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 like adjacent to things we've already talked about. How that um, the apartment is more like a machine rather than sort of like it's not the like a bachelor, right? The house is inundated with poetic meaning. It's 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 the site of shelter and it is imbued with poetry because of that. Which and he takes the poetic image to kind of like be prior to language, almost you know, sort of like mm-hmm. the images we have when we think about childhood homes and so on. Uh, and the the apartment. Often refuses that because of its because of its sheer functionality, and that's what we see in this. That and there is this sense that, and this is something we can critique. I think we should critique the idea that mm-hmm. it's impossible to have to have home in this um, Heideggerian sense of the gathering of the fourfold together into sort of like the essential being, the Sodarzain or something like that. But you can't do that in a ha- in, in an apartment. You can only do that in a home, in a house. But it does feel like the film is saying that you know, Sabatam. Um, there there are, aren't opportunities for general organic connectivity and organic living which are obviously value laden terms which we want, which we should critique because that can lead to very reactionary ways of thinking um, but at the same time that is what this film is, is showing and I think you can argue that this is an anti-modernist film an anti-technology film mm-hmm. that it is, is showing a very sceptical light to what actual modern living is like for all yeah. of the reasons that we've been talking about these last two hours or so yeah. that, um, that that the urban spaces that we see are all geared around production and yeah. that being what it's about rather than it emerging as of just the na- natural, again, valuating terms, I know the natural sort of like being wave of human beings with their with, with, mm. with the world around them and the, Oh God. Yeah. Um, I
1: think and this, I, I this, have, a,
0: yeah. Sir. Sorry. Yeah. And, and there's like, and the film in the in the worst film, the ghost is the ghost like in a worst version of this film, right? A ghost would just be sort of like I am the ghost of the of the dead Japanese warriors or something like that, sort of like and it being sort of like the ancient, ancient feudal Japan trying to sort of like break out into modernity. In the worst film, that would happen, and that doesn't happen in this film. There isn't a sense of like return, mm-hmm. like the ghosts are like they're faceless and you get yeah. the impression these all just like died recently right because like the, and yeah. I know we're going to talk a little we're going to set us up a little bit for our conversation about ghosts so is going to come shortly like basically like the premise of the film is that um, in the same way about the modern world like the, 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 the living world of the city has like hard physical limits for how many people can live in it so there's the afterlife mm-hmm and so they're having to come back and this is the thing you know, this is the frightening thing like, I know we've been saying about the f- f- that this is about being turned into ghosts but that isn't what happens though because like there's the, the one. basically like the rules in this movie are that um, there's a limited amount of like there's a set number of souls that can exist in the afterlife so they're having to come back through but they can't kill us because then we just take up room so they just what it does to people is much worse than that you just become like dissolved into ash and then that's just you forever in this halfway place yeah yeah and and Um, again that what the and the film like it does like the city feels much more like limbo uh you know like the same like it's not although there are like dark spaces and I'm going to talk a little bit about the dark spaces the forbidden rooms which I think you probably Mm. will have things to say about as well but for the most part the lighting of this film isn't isn't dark it's just grey it's just twilighty it's shadowy uh, yeah. And it is just yeah. and often just devoid of people. Like it's it's quiet in the way that cities aren't, which makes yeah. it upsetting. <laughs> uh, but yeah. the Arby's. Uh, but yeah, and and as well as that, you know, it it feels like you know it is very. This is Tokyo, and of course it's Tokyo because Tokyo is always the city of the future. Uh, it's, like like, it's going so, back, cause yeah. like going back like going back to to you know that that's Solaris, right? You know like that famously the 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 long sequence of a drive through the future city in Tarkovsky Solaris was just filmed in Tokyo. Because mm. that's just the expectation of well, this is the future, right? You know Japan just got there before the rest of us. Um
1: but, and- yeah.
0: And yeah, um yeah. So just talk a little bit about the forbidden rooms because that's uh, like I wanna
1: I wanna just like flag oh, up sorry, a point yeah. quickly before we talk about like uh, the forbidden Rooms specifically. But like, well, two things specifically. One, like, there's a line I actually just like I copied out um, when I was watching the film just to return to, which is like um, one of those moments where it's like it it feels very theatrical in the sense that the lines being imbued with meaning in a very kind of like scripted way. A very unnatural way and like one I can't remember what the context of the conversation is but it's one woman talking to another and she's saying like oh you know are you going to be okay are you going to be like I think she's expressing concern that someone's going to be alone and she's like well you have your friend this guy he lives in Tokyo and she replies yeah but Tokyo's huge (laughs) and it's like yeah um, it's like that that kind of resonate you know that just like that little bit because you know Tokyo is huge if you just google like Mm map of you know, urban outline outline of Greater Tokyo applied to UK. It's like most of it's an entire like three counties worth of space. Um but it's it's the
0: largest metropolitan space in the world. It is unfathomably huge.
1: Yeah. And it's like I mean fucking I feel like that when like I have friends south of the river here from here in Tottenham. It's like, oh but that you know, they might as well be living in fucking Wales. You know (laughs) um I mean, sometimes, I mean, that's, no, that's more of a COVID thing because it's, like, yeah, danger of trains. Um, but, yeah, no, there was, there was that. Um, I kind of just wanted to, like, say a quick thing about, like, the space as well because, like, I picked up on the thing you were saying about apartment blocks. And, um, and I think it's, like, um, it's notable, like, apartment blocks are eerie. And I think one of the eerie, you know, from... Experiences of having been in them briefly, having been uh, in halls of residence, having you know visited people in flats, you never know who's at, how many of the flats are actually occupied. You have to like go out at night and see how many lights are on or something. And there's the knowledge that you could be all alone in a gigantic structure that was far bigger than you would ever need. Um, and I think it's like combination of that and the fact that and like, but I think one of the reasons why that's so haunting as well is because you know that the apartment above and below you is arranged exactly in the same way as yours. And so it's like, it's like, I think this ties into the kind of like late capitalist slash kind of liberal, uh, like kind of neoliberal mentality of like, if people are put in specific situations, they'll act in according ways and act according to a particular self-interest to better themselves in their situation. And so it's like, you know, Homo economicus. Uh, you are one with a series of other Homo economici um, occupying these spaces, and um, and so it's like, if you don't know your neighbours, how do you know they're not scary clones of yourself, or or doing something uncannily wrong in the space that you're in? Um, a film that
0: uh, yeah. uh, a film that does that really well, and is and is more fun than Pulse, uh, is Candyman. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Oh fuck no! This bit. This bit. This bit, um, yeah, I think you know the bit I'm gonna, gonna say where like I know
1: exactly what you're gonna say. <laughs> yeah, say Where it, the yeah.
0: protagonist it like demonstrates to because it's about you know, initially begins like investigating these series of murders in the housing project in in Chicago, question mark it's Chicago, isn't it? And I think so, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. what the protagonist, who's like this white academic, like discovers is that the luxury apartment block she lives in was built as a housing project for African Americans. And it wasn't used for that purpose because there wasn't a clear urban demarcation basically separating it from the good quote unquote bits of the city. So it wasn't used for that purpose. But what she demonstrates is that it was poss- would have been possible for the killer who they initially were looking for to enter into someone's apartment through their bathroom. Because the only thing separating what the apart the bathroom of one apartment from the one next, was the medicine cabinet and what she shows to her friend in a very spooky scene just because of this is, if, like, she prides prizes the um, medicine cabinet off the yeah. bathroom wall and then it's just an empty apartment identical to hers except for it being empty on the outside yeah. and it's really fucking scary to to, to and, imagine that. With the, and that, that's almost
1: even, even more scary than the fact that, like, this same exact phenomenon manifests itself um, several blocks over in the kind of like African-American demarcated space um, and that's where the ghost serial killer thing is existing like
0: yeah so yeah it's important. a really Candyman's really good like yeah. I watched it I've only seen it twice and Barker
1: I didn't realise
0: yeah, like, uh, yeah music by Philip Glass which is hilarious yeah. but yeah because like I watched it once at uni and, and liked it but didn't think much about it after that, but then I watched it again for only the second time yeah. like two weeks ago, and or less than about like a week ago, and I was just, oh my god, this is so good, this is such a solid horror movie. I watched uh, it maybe, in uh, yeah,
1: maybe I, I watched it Candyman. in French. Just... <laughs> the French title is L'homme de bonbon, <laughs> <laughs> it's not, I'm lying, I'm lying on the internet. Oh, that's
0: a shame, anyway. But it should uh, be <laughs> it
1: okay, Gandyman. Um, so like, yeah, just to like tie this off a bit. About um, about why this is significant in a Japanese context, even though like the the architectural foibles of modernism are a global phenomena from um, Paris to Brasilia. A uh, bit of a bit of a brutalism shout out there. Um, like even though I've like defined this film against Ring a lot, I think it's very significant, right? Uh, well, especially in the book rather than the film, um, that this um this idea of space is also present in how um how like the the, the horror unfolds and you know uh, but specifically specific to like Japan in the 90s and the idea of um it's not just um it's not just you know the concept of um kind of this architecture is scary it's like the failure of the vision of this architecture is it's you know it's it's ontology 101 it's basically you know this is the future we are expecting but the economic downturn Um, got rid of, you know, put a pin in that, and now um, the vision that was going to be the future is here, haunting us and rotting. Um, This is something, and you know, this was obviously extremely true in early 90s Japan, but this is something captured in um, Koji Suzuki's um, opening of his novel that was uh, Ring, that was the um, basis of the film of the same name. Um, So, um, yeah, so it begins... September 5th, 1990, pm Yokohama. A row of condominium buildings, each 14 storeys high, ran along the northern edge of the housing development next to the Sankian Garden. Although built only recently, nearly all the units were occupied. Nearly 100 dwellings were crammed into each building, but most of the inhabitants had never even seen the faces of their neighbours. The only proof that people lived here came, up at, came at night when the windows lit up. Off to the south, the oily surface of the ocean reflected the glittering lights of a factory. A maze of pipes and conduits crawled along the factory walls like blood vessels on muscle tissue. Countless lights plagued over the front wall of the factory like insects that glow in the dark. Even this grotesque scene had a certain type of beauty. The factory cast a wordless shadow on the Black Sea beyond. A few hundred metres closer, in the housing development, a single new two-storey new two-story home stood among empty lots spaced at precise intervals. Its front door opened directly onto the street, which ran north and south, and beside it was, one car, was a one-car garage. The home was ordinary, like those found in any new housing development anywhere, but there were no other houses behind or beside it. Perhaps owing to their inconvenience for transport links, few of the lots had been sold, and for sale signs could be seen here and there along the street. Compared to the condos, which were completed around the same time and which were immediately snapped up by buyers, the housing development looked quite empty, looked quite lonely. A beam of fluorescent light fell from an open window on the second floor of the house onto the dark surface of the street below. The light, the only one in the house, came came from the room of Tomoko Oishi. Dressed in shorts and a white t-shirt, she was slouched in a chair, reading a book for school. Her body was twisted into an impossible position, legs stretched out towards an electric fan on the floor, fanning herself with the hem of her t-shirt to allow the breeze to hit her bare flesh. She muttered about the heat to no one in particular. (laughs) um okay i don't think there's anything more pertinent in that section but um yeah um aside from the fact that they appear to be living in the house from arrested development you know that's fucking eerie um this is more of kind of side point or kind of perhaps something to explore at a different point but uh returning to that book uh that was a fun read despite my my own kind of like reservations about it nonplaces uh one of the um one of the points that he kind of uh that Mark Auger opens up on is talking about um talking about houses in fact and talking about the home and uh how this has been fundamentally changed um for by you know the condition of like super modernity or late capitalism or whatever you want to call it uh, and the point that he picks up on is uh, is essentially the one that marks the break from um, classical traditions or you know like the the eye the ideas that would have like gone back to you know pre-modernity uh, which is how houses are organized and the, the idea of the hearth that um, and this is you know The hearth always marked the centre of the home. It was the source of life. It was the source of warmth and things. And things gravitated towards the hearth and everything radiated out from it. Um, And, you know, that was... It became the centre of kind of domestic life. And, you know, it's it's kind of a hackneyed thing to say the television replaced the hearth and then um, that mantle was taken up by the internet. But the crucial distinction that's made is that it's no longer... Uh, directed inwards it's directed at a point of connection to the outside so um so that the the idea of you know the the television or the computer as the half of the home fundamentally readjusts the concept of what a home is um and so that's like yeah that's that's you know that's that connects us back to um very much to i don't know that's just pertinent i think the fact that like it was such a such a fundamental part of human psychology and something that's existed for such a long time. You know, we look at ancient traditions and how the hearth in ancient Greek places actually had gods and a whole mythology associated with it. And now that mythology is gone, but it's been replaced by a different kind of mythology. I just think that's, that's extremely pertinent.
0: Um, I I mean, that's, yeah, that's a very, that's a very hard to get an observation. Like in, in one of my favorite essays by him, building dwelling thinking, um, Precisely, like precisely, what he says is like wrong with technology, with the technological world. And again, simplifying, but is the fact mm. that he he states that the original what building meant originally was this idea of kind of like of, of a gathering of the sacred forces of nature and humanity mm. together, basically into this site where they can meet one another. And he talks about in um in the Bremen lectures, where he talks about how in the peasant's home the traditional peasants home in Germany, you know, sort of like there was like, there is the home altar where, you know, where there is the cross and there's images of saints and so on. And there's the nursery, there's the children's room and so on. And there's even like a space traditionally kind of like reserved for death where when a family member died, when their casket would be left for a while with them in it, which he calls that, which he in the, in, in, in German was called a um, uh, Totbaum, a death tree And this mm-hmm. idea of there being and and but yeah the idea being that um of this the home as a site where the fourfold of nature of earth, of, of, of earth sky of, of earth sky mortals and divinities gather together into this like the originary site of being basically um mm-hmm. and how in technology in the in, in, in the life of modern technology, that isn't possible anymore. That that is something that like he says, you know, there aren't death death trees aren't planted anymore because there's the, motoride, the motorized the motorised funerary industry. Mm. And that actually could have been that should have been one of the things I brought up earlier in the podcast talking about Heidegger and, and death, which is one of my favourite one of my favourite subjects Heidegger deals with. <laughs> but yeah, precisely the like, and that is kind and it is actually, actually, no, I will, I will wax lyrical on this a little bit, actually, because this is it, this was among my handwritten notes. Like, the film's relationship with death, where there's this kind of sense that, like I said, you know, the, the ghosts don't kill people, because that just makes mm. more ghosts. And that's the whole thing they don't want, because there's too many ghosts. Um, which does, that makes it sound a bit dumb, but no, it does work. Mm. But, like, so instead, it's this kind of sense that modern technological life, it's one where there isn't even death. There's just this kind of, like, continuance perpetually. And this is yeah. kind of like, if we want to bring it into theological um, terms, you know, there's this, you know, when we talk about eternity and infinity with relation to God, what we are not talking about is extensive duration of time or or presence or something like that, or, or extension. What eternity and, and infinity means is the sense of being outside of duration and outside of extension. But what this film is like, and it is through this like foreclosure of spiritual horizons or transcendental horizons that modernity brings about, is instead of a eterni- uh, instead of eternity, there is just endless duration of existence. And wow. how this is literally a worse fate than death, because because yeah. death in in the heidegger in, in heidegger's understanding of it is death is our encounter of being as being because being a, because being itself is not a being it is nothingness in death encountered as death it is simply an encounter with being with the with being itself with the nothingness of being by becoming nothing ourselves uh and 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 obviously then there's like like the uh religious understandings of you know death is still like the necessary capstone of life because that is what it is to be alive and to not be God, essentially, is, is, is to die. And how that is something refused in this film. That um, we can't die, we don't die. We, we just evaporate, but continue. And that's really nightmarish and upsetting yeah. to think about.
1: And I think this is leading us in an in appropriate uh, Cairo fashion on a, an inexorable course towards the Red Room. Uh, the, no, the forbidden rooms marked off with red tape. Yeah, And I I kind of wanted to pull back a little bit from that just because, like, I think this is just extremely pertinent to what we've been talking about. And just, like, I guess we can... Because what you've been talking about there, that's not, you know, classic weird signal extrapolation. This is something that is in the... Or, you know, it's never just extrapolation. We're always, we always back things up with rigor is here. But this is in the text of the film. It's literally... Um, but not just in the text of the film It's a um, It's a, an ambition, it's a wish Expressed, you know, partly in desperation Partly in strange optimism by Kawashima um, The economics student who is like one of Who is the only one who survives Or no, no, he's one no. of the no, no, he's not the only one who survives, but like he's one of the longer He's the one who sort of like Makes it the furthest He's the last uh, this, one to get yeah. got yeah. And like, he's kind of like He is A very interesting figure to, you know, in cultural terms, in economic terms in this film. Because, you know, they're all like, you know, salary people. They all have jobs and stuff. They all have aspirations. He is a running counterpoint to so much in the film. (laughs) He is Um, the most strongly
0: characterised character in this, yeah. Even
1: before he starts, you know, getting existential, you know, waxing philosophical about death. He's, um, he's, you know, we talk about the, you know, the, um... One of the symptoms of late capitalism being that, you know, uh, and especially kind of the Japanese culture surrounding work of, um, you know, one's entire self-worth being predicated on this insane kind of self-destructive pursuit of respectability through engagement in capitalism. He's studying economics, but really doesn't care that much. <laughs> He's like aware of the Internet, but has little curiosity. The He's Internet, never that's never used the, the library. He's, like, he doesn't know how to get out of the library. He showed up, you know, he's probably just, like, read the course materials that were printed out for him. But, like, he's just kind of... He's just kind of partying. And, like, it's like, oh... He wears... Yeah. like
0: surfer shit it's great
1: yeah he's got that that shirt that says like is it bahamas 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 it's <laughs> like he wants to just go to the bahamas and hang out he's just like he's probably in uni because his dad forced him to go yes. and economics seemed like the most appropriate thing to do the only and, you know, like
0: tech technology thing he has in his apartment is is a playstation and yeah. when harroway i love this bit but when the harroway comes round. And, like, he starts, like, t- t- when she's, like, working his computer, he starts sort of, like, collecting, like, the controller like, hiding it, and it's says, oh, no, a girl's come over. I have yeah. to...
1: <laughs> he's a fucking lost relic of, like... He is pure Gen X. Like um, Yeah, he's, he's like, but, like you know, he's by import- far my
0: favourite character and yeah. arguably the only character. <laughs>
1: yeah, and he's importing, like, the model of, like, American grunge slacker in every part of his being, and he's a... He's a Chad, dare I say.
0: Like and, yeah. the way I'll describe him is um, sadly he does not at any point punch a ghost, but he is the character most likely to. <laughs> um, like when he when he does go into like the forbidden room where the ghost lives, basically, yeah. um, like he just sort of like. And, like, he does fail, you know, he looks at it and that's, like, the whole thing, how they get you when you look at them. But, yeah. like, he holds up the longest and he does, like, just basically say this is bullshit. There aren't ghosts. I'd yeah. <laughs> like, and and like him
1: all the way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and
0: like the thing that happens at the beginning of the film and his computer, like, does the weird shit of the ghosts is he just, like, says, this is fucking stupid and turns it off. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just sort of it, like, but oh, but you know, it's just good, like, this, like, brutal explosion into sheer common sense into is. the surroundings. <laughs> We're so, no, uh, we should just follow to his example. The internet, for that's for nerds. I, yeah, I'm not catafly. a nerd, I want a parley. <laughs> yeah. I will so also maintain so I don't think he yeah. ever actually has gone surfing and gone to the Bahamas. He want like, yeah. that's his, like, the vibe he gives us so, all like, that's what, like, at the party he would sort of, like, eventually have to say, well, I know, I actually, yeah. I actually being I there. Uh, like,
1: also, we talk about, like, you know, there's this, like, all this discourse about, like, how, like, um, Japanese men, like, can't talk to women, or there's this the dislocation of between the sexes, which I think is, you know, probably, it's like a played up anime trope or something. But he's not, like, a kind of aggressively masculine guy who has no problem talking to women, nor is he, he's just, like, He's awkward but not shy, in that combination that you never see in an anime, say. Where like, he's just like, he's a mess but he'll just be like, Okay, hi, I'm in the computer room now because I've got a computer problem. Uh, yeah, you seem to know, like, <laughs> it's like hacker, huh? Yeah, alright, I'll run with that. Um, I think we're talking about a very merry subject because the red the the forbidden room is fucking disturbing. So um,
0: yeah, like the yeah. the nast like the, the worst shit in the film happens in yeah. these forbidden rooms. And, and like you know real no yeah. explanation is given for exactly like what they are, but again, that's kind of the folkloric aspect of them. Mm. Where like they're just like the rooms where the ghosts live, basically. Uh, yeah. just like where like people have just like Put red tape over the seams of the doors and the windows yeah. and stuff, like to try and keep it in. And it feels like there's almost like this kind of like desk like these kind of like quite like primitive magical acts almost. know, yeah. yeah, Sort of like the symbolic gestures to try and preserve the symbolic order of life and death from mm. the intrusion that has destabilized them. Yeah.
1: And um, and what what I what I you know characterise by the forbidden room mostly. It's like when people mark it off, they they're not saying. No one's told them to do that that this is going back to what I was saying about like how like everything seems to act on the kind of implicit will of dream logic that you just do these things because they seem like the appropriate thing to do like it's like okay well I've seen a ghost there's a room I guess I'll like tape over it um, but like also I think I was showing I think. I, I couldn't verify this, but I sh- tried to show it to my mom and she did say that apparently, like, putting red things over a door is, like, a traditional marker of, of death or, like, there is a body in the room or something, maybe something equivalent to what you were talking about with, like, the death tree or the death room uh, in the he- Heideggerian description of uh, houses. Um, but, yeah, like, it's something that, like, people are, people are just marking off. And but,
0: yeah. uh, but it has the opposite effect to what is presumably the intention because it makes them enticing. And it's actually something that kind of brings me a little bit back to, around to Bachelor, even though I saw, like I said, that like, like although it's great, I actually really like really enjoyed reading it. But I realised there was actually like, limited applicability of what he's talking about because he's talking about the bourgeois home rather than like the traditional bourgeois home, rather than sort of like the technological department block, which is, he states at one point in the book, he says, I'm not going to be talking about repulsive spaces because he's talking about space, like he's talking about shelter for the most part and experience being sheltered by a home and the primordialness of that phenomenologically speaking. But what he kind of like skips over there feels like is the possibility of a space which entices rather than mm-hmm. just plainly attracts because of its sheltering character. Like, and the idea of, like, being enticed is when you're aware of the possibility of the threat. But, mm. and again, much much like being online, you go for it. Yeah. <laughs> like, you say- know that, like, this yeah. is probably a bad idea, but there's an irresistibility to it. It's not a space... These aren't spaces that repulse. They are spaces that entice us into coming into them. And they're all... Spaces which, like, if you go on like the liminal Facebook pages and stuff like that, our spaces are spaces that get shared as liminal spaces because they're like mm-hmm. the, um, the back the void, room of the office, the back room no of the office, uses. the void under the stairs, the basement, um, stuff like that. And um, in the, the broom it, closet at Disneyland, the broom closet at Disneyland, and like in, in the Peric uh, I was referring to, there's a section, and I, I, won't, I won't read from it, but we basically he talks about how he's tried to imagine a useless room. Like a genuinely useless room, and we I mean, can't because that almost feels like you always just end up running against some perceived usefulness for it. It's very clear. I don't mean a room in which things are stored or it's put or a room that's put in case you need it one day, but a room that has no function at all. And the impossibility of that. But these are also spaces that feel like they're the closest you can get to a room which is genuinely totally devoid of any functional usage. And it's almost like these are the gaps in the global, um, in, in, in in like the global. Social projects or something, which has let the other through, has let the outside come in, Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and they are all like, and these are the kind of spaces where, like, you do one day find yourself like going, "I'm gonna go in there." Yeah. No, I should, like I'm gonna it almost like although like i kinda of wanna like, palate cleanse it a little bit. It just reminds me a bit of the bottle episode of Peep Show where they get stuck. I mean like fuck Robert Webby's a turf, but like the episode of Peep Show where they get just, like stuck in the corridor between two apartments. But he didn't write and- it. He didn't write it, no, actually. So yeah, but yeah. But like and they just and it's just like over the course of it, like they're just sort of like end up just like mythologizing the space they're in, like giving it names, like sort of like well, like, when he gets excited when he finds a cupboard under the stairs. its look, there's an there's an area. We can maybe we can stay in the area. <laughs> <laughs> and it is like kind of uncanny because it is just the experience of like being like just, just trapped in this space where they can't get out. And there's like just and and that and yeah and and this is like why like pictures of liminal spaces on facebook or like if you or like the the urban legend of the back rooms and stuff Mm. like that become quite interesting is because like what happens well what these spaces often are like you said it's the back room of the office or like it's a depressing pharmacy or something like that and it's and what 's interesting about them and their and their uncanny character is they are spaces you generally don't pay attention to, but when circumstances like and i just mean and i 'm just thinking about pharmacy because I had to wait to pick up a prescription recently and was just like sitting on the seat i mean' like just staring at one of like the corners and just thinking. I bet no one ever, like, thinks about that corner. They're just, like, looking at the shelves and thinking what weird-looking things shelves are. And that's precisely... And this is, like, the uncanny character of these places, the eeriness of the encounter with them. is because they're spaces where, like, their whole thing is they don't draw attention to their presence. But then, because of the way they're being shown to us or because of the way we've encountered them, we are thinking about their presence. We are actually encountering them knowingly as being present and what's weird and the weird thing about this we generally don't do that mm. that's what's unsettling and, about it that's and, what's sp- spooky about it
1: and i think like just like i have two points like one one small point and one large point to kind of follow, tie in and then follow that on is is the fact that like in the mythos of the film in the kind of ghost situation um these act like um they almost seem like accumulators and amplifiers of the phenomenon like they're they're sectioned off to like prevent them from incurring into the world but it means that they're just like they're more stewed over time and then um and then when they're event you know inevitably ruptured um then it's like then you know, then it leaks out and it reaps its you know and then the people it don't, i'm not gonna say you know that's the thing so much of this you can't you can't anthropomorphize it in the same way you would talk about a traditional ghost story that the vengeful spirit subdued for so long comes out it's no it's it's just like it just affects people more because it's built up and um and like I think what's what's what I kind of like how i f- how I kind of tied it in with like viewing Kurosawa's uh circuit slash pulse as um being a kind of, not an indictment, but just a kind of, like, a speculative um a speculative assessment of the horror of modernity, is that, um is that they are sites of repression uh, or no, sites of suppression and this is the thing I was talking about, like, way back at the beginning with the, the idea that, like, um Japan is able to sustain its kind of, like hyper-modern mentality by, um by, by like, by presenting a very normalised, a very neat and final definition of its past um, that it then kind of reveres as this static, immutable thing that has a, you know, had some part in shaping the present but that part is now played and it's just a story that's told as part of the national character and no, it is, that's never a thing. The past has always got this kind of... um this kind of power and what i feel like the the forbidden rooms uh they are like you know that's where like if we you know it's all like kind of it's almost like outside of it they exist in the kind of urban legend um kind of undirected almost kind of like biological supernatural but inside um they're the site of the memory of when ghosts were um ghosts were a more kind of familiar thing and then it's kind of like suddenly the realization that this familiarity is, is 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 like is the same thing as the classical ghost and it is um it's just like we're looking at it with modern eyes now i think that's something you know that's maybe a maybe a bit of a riff but i think that's something that's pertinent but also i think one of the key things is the fact that um the futility of the gesture of sequestering this space with red tape is um, it's an instinct to try and you know set to relegate something to the past and to contain it but in every case it's not a space that is owned in perpetuity by another person or by an individual because no individual owns any part of the landscape they're in the landscape they're in is completely owned by capital and so there's that part where they you know there's a whole, like, um, there's a whole kind of, like, uh, soliloquy about, you know, when, you know, these places might rest for for centuries and then get ruptured. And, like, when you see it ruptured, it's an old abandoned building being torn down, presumably to make space for a new thing. And that is the process of capital, shoveling up the past with no due care or attention, or, you know, um, in the not or just, like, shoveling up the past because it doesn't recognize the past as something that exists anymore. And then when the past comes out, it's terrifying. And it, it does kind of have an effect on people in in the modern age. And I think, you know, that's, that is this, this, uh, that is, you know, the, uh, the realization of the horror that is existing here. And it's like, I think it's sort of like why, even though it's clunky in narratological terms, to have this take place, you know, to have this work itself up into a, an apocalypse scenario. If we're doing a horror film about capitalism, isn't the ending always going to be an apocalypse scenario? Because what the fuck else could it be? You
0: know. <laughs> yeah. With um,
1: Signal One O One.
0: I I think we should move. We should have concluding remarks now. Okay. Well, yeah, I I, I,
1: I also yeah I had some comments about like uh, the genre. Uh, and, like, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I had... Uh, we always have more of, to say. We've yeah. been
0: recording for two hours and 37 minutes. Um, okay. Well, right. then,
1: yeah. And ha- we can have a whole separate thing about urban legends. Yeah. I that Jay like I, as a term. Yeah,
0: I, I, I do want to talk more about um, folklore do and stuff it. like yeah. that. We might do yeah no, You need to uh,
1: get
0: yeah, your but, thing in. Yeah. But, uh, so, bringing things to a conclusion... Um, I'm going to end my bit with a fun thing, which is that uh, naturally, like in J-horror tradition, Pulse was remade by the Americans. Uh, I have not seen the remake. It is reportedly terrible. But I will read a single line from the Wikipedia article for the sequel, the first of the two sequels to the American remake, Pulse 2 Afterlife. Uh, It was a a straight-to-DVD film. Ahem. The majority of the film's sets are actually photographs with the actors inserted in. Cool. So there you go. Wait. I that's... found that ah. quite funny to read.
1: <laughs> Fuck.
0: <laughs> Maybe we should do a special episode where we watch the like the three American versions of this film. Yeah. Even, and the like, a...
1: Let's do you America does Japanese horror wrongly and talk about all the various comparisons that can be made. That yeah. be
0: very very fun Yeah, bon- uh, first
1: bonus episode J-Horror debunked J-horror. <laughs> Weird Signal <laughs> destroys J-Horror <laughs> uh, as a critical term also uh,
0: Kurosawa adapted um, the uh, pulse, the, uh, the script to uh, pulse into a novel uh, I've no idea if it's been translated into English or not but that's fun mm. uh, yeah um, yeah yeah so yeah there we go Um
1: well, this has been a pretty stonking return to form, I'd say. I've <laughs> like, had so to... much fun doing this. Although yeah. I do feel
0: quite sticky now because I've been—it's quite warm.
1: <laughs> well, I was really nervous about doing this episode because I did too much research, um, because I kept going for a long time, because uh, we didn't know when we were actually going to record. So now I'm like, oh, thank God that's no longer in my system. But then yeah. some of it is. But we'll. Deal I'm looking with that forward in to.
0: To the fact that over the next week I won't have to feel guilty about not reading Philosophy in the evenings for a little bit <laughs> um, That's, that's going to be good until we start doing The next episode of Buddies Without Organs yeah. uh, But that's only good If it's only ever reading one thing though It's not like this where it's watching a film And just like desperately bringing together as many texts as possible That's why we um, only have like
1: 31 episodes To date
0: We've done 30 yeah.
1: <laughs> Over three years sure.
0: Three <laughs> Uh but that's also why this is so long. Um, we are going to do. We don't know how many more we're going to do this year, but we are going to do more than just this. There's going to be uh, at least three. Um, I think. I mean, yeah, yeah, like we said, we are going to. We are thinking about trying to do this more like a proper podcast and actually get them out quite more, more, do more in shorter time. Maybe, maybe by being more disciplined with what we end up reading. If I don't we're
1: know. Capable of that. Like I don't know. That's a test, and one maybe to win is to fail. Whoever wins, we lose. I don't know. You're <laughs> Much this... like
0: Alien versus Predator, yes. yes. We are go- yeah, We're gonna be we're gonna be doing more. I can't remember right now because I'm quite tired. What the next one is we're going to do? We have agreed. I can't remember anymore what it is. Actually, no, we didn't agree, did we? We have like several uh, options.
1: Well, we can't say. We can't say because that spoils it. There was We've one we were going to do, but then
0: we decided we're not going to do it. And then I suggested... I uh, I can't even remember. I suggested one, which we are, which we will do, which will be a really fucking weird one. I think I want
1: to drop a tantalising hint in that the next one might be a tie-in with Buddies Without Organs. But mm. what that means, and whether we actually do it, is...
0: Who unnamed. bloody knows?
1: Who fucking knows? Right. All right well, I've been time. Sean. I've been Lucy.
0: You can find me on Twitter because we never we never do this. You can find me on Twitter at horn naught.
1: You can't find me on Twitter because, like, um, unless you're already friends with me, because like I'm trying to separate my digital self from my real self.
0: You can find me yeah. at naught. Uh, you, you can find wi- us
1: at weird signal. Although I do the tweets, I'm responsible for that. <laughs>
0: Uh, listen, please listen to my Deleuze and Qatari podcast, Bodies Without Organs, which I do with Matt Cahoon and Corey J. Wright, uh, Corey J. White. Um, which you can find at bro pod, or you can just look at my Twitter and find the thing there. Uh, I might be doing
1: a different thing, which may or may not be out by the time we release this because we depends. haven't recorded it yet, but hmm. and
0: also depends how quickly. The editing gets done because this is quite long <laughs> it's
1: quite long, and we're gonna have to listen to the whole thing yeah,
0: yeah. like uh anyway, we're gonna stop now. Thank you yeah. very much for listening to yes. Weird Signal. We hope that you've enjoyed um our first episode in a very long time. We're gonna try mm-hmm. and do one in quicker than seven months uh and That's the truth. yeah, yeah, all
1: right well, um until next time, listener
0: until ne- until such a time as when. Stay weird
1: and keep it signal. Bye. Bye.